This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends new cartridges before you run out. So you never have to think about ink. For details, visit hp.com slash instant ink Spotify. Conditions apply. Welcome to Chapter Tactics, your 40k podcast, which focuses on playing warmer 40k competitively at all levels of the game. I'm your host, Petey Pob, and with me, I've got Mr. Abuse Puppy himself, Sean Morgan. Hey, Petey. How you doing, Sean? And today, we're going to be talking about steps you guys can take to up your tournament game. Uh, the reason why I started, I re- the reason why I wanted to have this podcast, and also because Sean thought it'd be a great topic, and it's something Sean really wants to talk about as well, so it's something we both want to help you guys improve on, is uh, <clears throat> climbing the ladder and doing really well in tournaments, and things you can do, uh, just kind of basic things that top players hypothetically know, uh, <clears throat> that lower ladder players maybe not necessarily they don't necessarily do them very often. Uh, and the introduction of my podcast, I talk about being competitive at all levels of the game. And lately, I felt like my last few episodes have been geared towards a more high-level tournament play and not really basic competitive tactics knowledge, right? So so I'm not saying that players on the lower ladder, players at the lower levels of the game or that level of the game aren't interested in that stuff, um, but I do want to kind of cater to you guys specifically um, because I do like seeing players who who go to a lot of tournaments who go to one and three two and two uh, and then they come up to me and they're like hey Pablo the advice you gave me or the the meta you talked about on the podcast got me to four and two or five and one they're really pumped and like that's that's what I want so that's kind of what the the point of this episode is going to be and then and, oh go ahead go ahead Sean well, and, and fundamentals are important to everyone like that's a thing that even really good players, you know, the guys who are top eighting LVO, the fundamentals are what get you there. That's true. And those, and you talk about fundamentals and a lot of this stuff is going to sound like it's common sense, right? Like, Oh, duh, of course I do that every time. However, it's very important to have this conversation. Um, not only to maybe tell you guys stuff that you don't know, um, but also just to kind of uh, drill it into your brains a little bit, right? Cause it's, it's very easy to, forget about the fundamentals when you're playing the game, um, especially when something crazy happens, you know, or or, um, or or you're in an uncomfortable environment, right? Like maybe you had to drive really far and your tire blew out and you're already thrown off your game a little bit. Uh, so the reason why you guys are listening to this now is um, hopefully you guys have these fundamentals memorized a little bit and maybe repeat them to yourselves as you go in. So I just want to give that little stipulation right there. Um, some of this is going to sound like common sense, uh, especially for those of you who who are tournament veterans. Um, but 
it's always good to go over them, as Sean said, and a lot of you are probably don't know all of them, and uh, some people who are new to tournaments probably don't know them all, for sure. It's It's definitely the kind of stuff that it needs to be so ingrained into you that you do it without thinking. And you're not. You're going to miss it. You're going to screw it up. That's why people lose games. That's why good players lose games. But the more you do it, the better you'll be. Right on. We're also going to be talking to Skari from Skardcast. Uh, I interviewed him, and he's going to talk about the event, the Barry Bash, in Barry, Ontario, Canada. It was an event that happened two weekends ago, and I just I wanted to talk about him. They actually are one of the they are the first large ITC event to run chess clocks in the new year. Oh, so they interesting. Ran chess clocks. Yeah, it's it's actually it's uh cool how successful they were with their chess clocks, and they, uh, Scary told me that. They were, in general, really well-received, and there were no problems with time constraints towards the end of games, which is always something you want to hear. And, of course, yeah. Grace and Frankie, you've been talking about chess clocks, so if you guys want to... It's wanna... been on everyone's mind, yeah. Oh, absolutely. So, it, a big tournament with a lot of high-caliber players use chess clocks, and that'll be the second half of the episode. We'll talk just to Skari, and you guys can get, you know, your opinions on chess clocks and listen to Scary talk about a really good event. But before we jump into all this, uh, some announcements. First and foremost, I'm I'm not unhappy with with the way the podcast is formatted. However, I do realize that in order to take this podcast to the next level, uh, I need a different show format, right? So if you look at the best podcasts, they, they are consistent, they have formats, they have multiple segments, and they're, they're a little bit more professional. So... In the next month or two, I'm going to start working on different show formats. It's going to be experimenting a little bit, um, so bear with me, guys. I, I'm I'm not going to go too crazy, too radical. Uh, I'm still going to keep the same show intro. I'm still going to kind of keep the same style, um, but I'm going to try some things out. Uh, I want to see what works, and in general, I just want to become a more professional podcast. And a little bit of that is my fault, is uh, mostly just time constraints. It takes a lot of time and dedication to become a more quote-unquote professional podcast or uh, have those segments. It, it takes a lot more editing on my part, more interviewing, and more work, uh, which is actually why I brought on Sean, Jeff, and Val to help me out as co-hosts, and they've been absolutely helpful, every single one of them. Uh, they've helped me keep me on my game, uh, and they've helped me with being consistent, which is something that I pride myself on. I've been consistently for 50 episodes now, once a week, uh, with a few exceptions, but in general, I want to keep the consistency, but I want to improve the show format. Also, in the near future, I'm going to start breaking down the phases of the game, and that's going to be a whole a whole thing. It'll go on for several months, and every episode we'll, we'll talk about the movement phase, and then the shooting phase, and the psychic phase, and I want to break down 8th edition for you guys. I think, I think it's a topic that now that we have all, everyone's getting all their codexes, we're going to have even more people come into tournaments. The tournament scene is going to ramp up, and I want a series that people will always be able to look back on in 8th edition to up their game, and specific parts of their game, right? So if they're unsure about the psychic phase, if they're unsure about, you know, maybe their movement phase is off or whatever, I want those series of episodes to be there for those players forever. So I'm going to do that. And also, finally... Uh, I want to talk about sponsorships. For those of the sponsors who have sponsored the show in the past couple of months, thank you. I, I appreciate your sponsorships, and I appreciate the people reaching out to me and emailing me about sponsorships. 
But one thing I've realized is that tournament organizers are primarily the ones who, who've been reaching out to me. Uh, when I first started this, I thought I would get more people like Battle Foam, you know, companies, uh, and then a, the occasional tournament organizer. But the tournament organizers are really the ones who, who've emailed me and stepped up and offered to sponsor this push podcast so that we could talk about their show. And I, I felt it's, it's felt a little weird. Um, it's left a little bit of a bitter taste in my mouth. Um, <clears throat> I didn't. I don't really want to take their sponsorships um, because I, I want to promote them without taking their money. Essentially, that's that's how I feel. Um, some of you might feel a little bit differently about that, but I've decided that I'm going to maybe look into other options, uh, Patreon, uh, or maybe sponsorships in the form of um, tickets to your event or something, something else, something not monetary. Uh, for TOs specifically. So I'm going to change that a little bit on sponsorships. I, I had some really good arguments given to me for Patreon and not for sponsors. So I might just leave my commercials to be tournaments um, and just have those slots go to tournaments and then just take Patreon support. I don't know, but that's pretty much it. Uh, just some quick announcements and that's all. Do you have any announcements, Sean? I do not. I, I think... Just get into the meat of it. All right. One one more quick announcement that, that Jeff wanted me to talk about. Sean, when are you going to start jumping out of the narrative events and going into tournaments and kicking butt? <laughs> you know, I just don't feel like that's my speed. I'd rather just play a real soft game, rolling dice, drinking beer, doing a little coke on the sides, <laughs> like all the narrative events are. That's it feels like that for sure, at the very <laughs> least. But fair, oh. fair enough. Uh, Jeff absolutely insisted that I ask you that. So let's talk into let's talk about tournaments and uh, specifically fundamentals. Uh, Sean, you, you did have some stuff here that you wanted to mention first, um, but real quick, I want to preclude everything with this is this is stuff that it, it's going to get a little bit it's going to get a little bit luxury, maybe maybe just a little bit, but. It's all very, very important, and it, I'm going to give you guys a second to get a notepad. Um, if you're driving, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I don't get a notepad. Please don't listen to me. I'm crazy. Uh, but there's going to be a lot of really good information and a lot of really good stuff in here. And if you have any more questions uh, or if we're not completely clear on some things, uh, I do recommend that you email me, frontlinegamingpdpab at gmail.com, and I'd be more than happy to clarify anything for you. All right. And and also keep in mind there will be a quiz at the end of the podcast. So, I definitely take notes on this stuff. <laughs> All right, Sean, take it away. So, I I sort of want to preface this whole thing. It's like we want to talk about, you know, how do I get better at tournaments? You know, how do I become a better player? And we're going to give you a bunch of tips, a bunch of ideas, a bunch of hints. Uh, but the real secret to all of this is you get better by playing a lot and you're going to have to play a lot. You know, I spent a decade getting better at tournaments. I was not a great player when I started out. I, it, I got better over time and that's how it is for everyone. Some people start off a little higher. Some people start off a little lower, but anyone you see coming in top places at tournaments has put a lot of work into it. And the secret is that there is no shortcut. Uh, but that said, there are things you can do to get better more quickly. And there's some things that if you don't do them, you'll never get any better. 
So I think it's worth sort of talking about those and pointing them out because, like you said at the beginning, some of them are obvious, some of them are not so obvious. Uh, the most the most basic level of thing, like I said, is you've got to work for it. If you want to get better at tournaments and improve your rankings and go from that one and four to three and one or three and two, then you've got to be willing to put the effort in. And if you don't want to, that's fine. Not everyone does. You know, for a lot of people, this is just a hobby. They just want to come and have fun. That's 100% cool. But if you want to be that guy who goes four and one or five and oh at a GT, you have to be willing to put some work in for it. And the good thing that I can tell everyone right now is like we're not Magic the Gathering. We don't have millions of players in the United States alone. We've got a few thousand players. And what that means for for those of you who are looking to kind of scale this tournament ladder is the the top spots are within your reach. Like pretty much anyone listening to this podcast, if you go out and really train and really practice and study the lists, you could come in number one in ITC. You're going to have to fight for it. There's a lot of other people shooting for that spot, but you've got a reasonable chance of making it. Uh, it really just comes down to putting that work in. And a big part of that putting all that work in is just going to tournaments. You're going to need to find the tournaments in your area and you need to go to them. And even when you lose, you're going to need to keep going to tournaments because that's how you're going to get better. And you're going to need to play games outside of tournaments, getting ready for them. Uh, if the only time you think about a tournament is a week beforehand, you're like, Oh yeah, I should come up with a list for that thing. I'm going to, you're not going to do great. Uh, you need to prepare. You need to put, get in that mindset of like, I'm, I need to put in some work here, uh, because it will be work. But if you do that, you have a good shot at winning that tournament. You have a chance of making those top ranks in ITC. If you really want to swell your ego and get Pablo to, to mention you on his next big ITC, see ranking segments then you know you can do it you just gotta work uh so there is really what i would call like five big components to getting better at tournaments and i'm not going to talk about uh quote-unquote skill uh because Skill is such a nebulous and wide encompassing thing. Like you can say he's skilled at Warhammer 40k. And what does that mean? Well, that means everything. That's the whole game right there. So I'm not going to talk about skill because that's it's such a broad concept. It's just not useful, really. Um, it covers too much grounds. Well, well, Sean, if you don't mind up. Uh... I would actually say that these five components you listed here, uh, yeah. if you if you are competent in them or if you understand them, I would say that that would mean that you are skillful at 40k. Um, so yeah. If, so I agree that skill shouldn't be a component because these are the components that that make your skill, you know, show you where your skill is. Or yeah, you know, exactly. So. This is these are the blocks you build skill out of. Exactly. 
So to kind of hit our five big points, we have luck, knowledge, persistence, army, and mission. I think those are really the five things that you put them all together and you get a winning player out of someone who's good at 40k. Uh, and I kind of want to go through them piece by piece, talk about them each in turn, because they're they're each important in their own ways. And I think the big elephant in the room is luck, because I hear people say all the time, oh, you know, he just got lucky or, you know, luck is more important than skill or or things like that. And I just don't think that's true at all. Um, luck is absolutely a part of our game. It is a big part of our game. It's a dice game, as it turns out. Uh, that may be news to some of you, but welcome to 40K. Um but luck is part of the game, and it's something you have to deal with, and it's something that good players know how to deal with. Controlling your luck specifically, because I'm not recommending, you know, bringing cheater dice or <laughs> anything like that, or, you know, oh, I have my special lucky D6s. Um, and just as a little bit of an aside... Guys, I get it that, like, everyone says they have their lucky dice and everything, and that's really cute when you don't believe it, but when you actually believe that, that's kind of a sign that you may not be very good, because everyone's dice are the same. Dang. All of, well, all of, <laughs> all of that, like, you see every so often people repost those old articles from Belois Souls and whatnot about how, oh, they tested out the Citadel dice and they roll 37% or 74% ones. It's like, that's bullshit. That's if your point. dice were, if your dice were 30% ones, you would know right away. The truth of it is, you think your dice are bad because everyone thinks their dice are bad. Everyone is just like, oh, I rolled so many ones. Yeah, on that one roll out of 600 in the game, uh, because that's that's what it's really about. You're going to roll dice a lot and you're going to get some weird results, both good and bad. You don't remember the time you rolled nine sixes, but you remember the time you rolled nine ones. So if you're gonna be a good tournament player, you need to be ready to prepare for luck because that's a big, big part of playing this game. Okay. So how do you game plan for luck and make it a fundamental, Sean? You make it so that your game doesn't break on one die roll. If you get down to that very last turn and it was just, oh, if only I had rolled a five instead of a four on my advance roll, I would have won. Why didn't you start moving a turn earlier? You shouldn't have needed the five. You should have been ready to go there. And... That's the obvious example, but it's the same thing with, oh, if only my Meltagun had killed Marnius Kalgar, I would have won that game. Why didn't he have two Meltaguns? One Meltagun wasn't going to do the job. Two might have. Be prepared for the dice to go bad, and don't don't give the dice the chance to screw you over. Uh, don't let your dice depend on that single roll. Don't let your dice... Don't let your game depend on 10 rolls. Always have a backup plan 
for when your dice go bad because they are. Yeah. If I might add to this, because this is this is a really good point. Um, this also goes on to models as well. So too often, I, I see a lot of Tau players do this in particular. I'm going to pick on you guys um, because no one likes you guys anyways. <laughs> they deserve it. <laughs> but uh, they, they do it a lot with hammerheads, right? So I've had several friends oh, yeah. that they throw like one hammerhead in their list or like long strike. Um, and mm-hmm. this has been true across multiple editions. And I'm like, oh, well, well what are you going to do about a land raider or, you know, an imperial dight or whatever? And they're like, oh, I've got long strike. Like, oh, well, you know, he's one guy. He's a railgun. Like, what's he going to do? And they're like, oh, he's got like six shots a game. You know, and that's that's yeah. not really like he's not. That's not really a lot. You know, if when you look at old Lehman Russes, they're las guns. They're called misguns for a reason, right? Mm-hmm. Because you've got this plasma cushioner Lehman Russ with a hole mounted las cannon. And the, like, seven plasma cannons that you shoot, they're obviously going to do work. There's seven of them. Uh, but yeah. the one last cannon, it's the fire of the misgun, it's going to miss. And, you, you know, as as you said, Sean, <clears throat> that small, that that uh, role or that job that that Lehman Russ has, if you start giving it a job specifically that a last cannon can do, it's not going to be efficient at its job. Right, so you're going to need mm-hmm. either multiple LAS cannons or multiple Lehman Russes with multiple LAS cannons, which I don't recommend anyways. Um, but <laughs> you, you always want contingency plans even built into your lists and your models. Yeah, we'll talk about that more in the, the Army section because that is okay. a huge part of that. But I think you're right in the, the conceptual stage of people get into that, oh, I've got one hammerhead, I'm fine. No, you aren't. Uh, you know, even long strike hits on a two wounds on a two against almost everything in the game. Long strike won't handle a Lehman Russ long strike won't handle a land raider or a knight. You need more than that. One of relying on one single dice roll will not do the job. And I mean, part of that is just understanding the, the odds and the numbers behind things. It's like you look at, Oh, I've got a Laz cannon. Well, even if you're space marines, you miss a third of the time, you fail to wound a third of the time, you're looking at like a 50-50 shot to even do anything after you – and that's not even against like a two-up armor save where they get to roll real dice against your AP3. Um, you know, like a LAS cannon on average pushes through like one wound per turn against a vehicle. It's yeah. not that much. You can't just rely on that single las cannon or, you know, squad of three las cannons or whatever. That's not enough. Um, and understanding those numbers is, I think, really big. Yeah, and, and to, to further add on to this, uh, just to give you guys a clear example of, of numbers that we're talking about, because Sean brought up a great point about the Space Marines hitting one-third of the time or two-thirds of the time and then wounding two-thirds of the time or whatever, um, is that – in the game in general, it, it's it's kind of I forgot who said this to me, but a competitive top player was like, it's it's mind boggling that we kill anything at all in 40k period. Um, when you when you factor in everything, when you factor in yeah. uh, line of sight, range, because there's there's a six by four table, um, and not everything hits the table. So range, line of sight, hitting, wounding, and then your opponent just has to stand somewhere and get a save. And that's defensively. And if they've got a four-up save, you're losing another 50% of whatever shots finally get through. Right? So it's... it's Armies, in general, can be deceptively hard to kill. And um, even in 8th edition, where it's quote-unquote the most lethal edition, um, which actually I disagree with 100%, 
Um, I think it's the most interesting dynamic addition in that sense that defensive defensive units are really defensive and offensive units are really offensive. Um, but in general, uh, your army, yeah. as long as you have wounds and bodies, uh, your army will be defensive and your army will not get tabled. Um, yeah, it is It is much harder to kill things than people tend to think of, yes. even in 8th edition, even on planet Q-Ball with no terrain at all. It's one of the things I really recommend for players is keep some of the math hammer tools. There's a couple of them around. There's there's a bunch of them on the internet. There's dice tools you can get various places. Don't trust your intuitions about how much damage your units do because you will always overestimate that. I do it constantly. I'm I'm sitting there thinking like, oh, I shoot at that. I probably kill four models. And then I'm like, wait, no, let's run that through. And it turns out I kill like 1.7. It's not four. That's a fraction of four. It is it is much harder to kill things than people tend to think. And you know because people always think best case scenarios. Exactly. Oh, they'll fail that five up save. Well, not all the time they won't. I was just about to say that is uh, people tend to be negative when it comes to their dice rolls and and, and retrospective or uh, um looking looking back at their games in hindsight mm -hmm. is they're negative, but at at the in the moment they're almost always positive. They're like, yeah, my, my mortar team will kill 40 cultists, no problem. You know, I just need three <laughs> squads of mortar teams, and they'll kill 40 cultists every time. I never have to worry about them, ever. Um, and at the end of the game, they're like, man, my cult, my mortar teams were always rolling ones. You know, yeah, it, the mortars are a great example of that, because everyone thinks of like, ooh, that mortar team, that's going to shred light infantry. Hmm. You get ten shots, five of them hit, three of them wound, the guardsman saves one of them. You're killing two guys. You're not even killing as many guys as you got mortars. That's average. That's not even on a bad roll. That's an average roll right there. Everyone overestimates how much their units are going to do. Know the math and, and get that math internalized as much as possible. Don't just, oh, okay, you know, I can figure it out if I do this. You, you've got to know the math on a level that it's just intuitive. That if you plop your four Melta guns down next to that Rhino, you know what you're going to do to it on average. And you're ready for that. Because a lot of people are like, four Melta guns, that Rhino's dead, dude. You're in double pen range. Well, not really. Chances are you don't kill that Rhino. And that's really what it comes down to is understanding those odds and getting that feeling for what your units actually do, not what you want them to do, which everyone knows what they want their units. It's what your units are actually going to do on the table. And you always got to be a little pessimistic about that because the dice will come back and bite you every single time. Right. And then one more thing that top players do specifically um, to mitigate this is they kill things until they're dead. And they shoot yes. their whole armies at things. And then that that's it. Right, cause if I see it so often yes. that people will, you know, shoot and shoot and get that rhino down to like two wounds, and then they realize they don't have any guns left they can shoot at it because they move their other guns over to kill something else. Don't do that. Be ready to kill things and be ready to have just a little bit more than you think you need. Yeah, and if you kill one or two units a turn, um, because that's all your army can do, like that's that's good. That's fine. Just that's... make those one or two units count. That's absolutely fine. Like, 
I don't expect to get uh, death by a thousand cuts most turns. That's why it's a, a it's actually worth a point to do it because you probably won't kill three units a turn. You'll probably kill one or two units a turn. But if they're the right one or two units, that will win you the game. Yes. All right. Uh, the last thing I kind of wanted to to mention in terms of luck, and this is a big one. We've talked about bad luck. We've talked about how people think about it. When you're going back and looking at a game or you're talking about a game afterwards, don't blame your loss on bad luck because maybe your dice were a little below average. Maybe they weren't. But either way, you need to be ready to win the game even when you have bad dice. Good players do. Uh, if you actually like counted all up all of like Alex Fennel or Nick Manavani's dice over the course of a game, I guarantee you a lot of their wins, they had bad dice. Well, not Nick. He's, he's, he's lucky. I played him okay. <laughs> yeah. But not everyone is willing to sacrifice their firstborn child for that. He's I definitely... mean, like the dark Lord Satan just don't deal with everyone. So... Now, when you're when you're looking at your game and you're trying to improve, you can't blame your losses on bad luck, even if you had bad luck. You need to look at what could I have done differently, what could I have done better, even when you get bad dice, because you need to be ready for bad dice. They happen. And I agree with this, I think, 100%. I think this is one of those mindsets, uh, these pitfall mindsets that people can get themselves into that really stifle their game. Uh, I've got a Absolutely. perfect example of someone... Um, from a community, I'm not going to mention any names or the community, but he will know who he is the minute I say this. And he uh, has a tendency towards at the end of the game uh, to tell his opponent, you know what, I played tactically perfect. And Ugh. yeah, right, you know where I'm going. And that's yeah. the reason why you you won I... this game or you lo I lost this game is because of dice. That's it, every game. It's like I played tactically perfect. He'll tell his opponent, his buddies, yeah. you know, and it's this guy he's 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 kind of known for this in his community um but he doesn't win a lot he doesn't win any tournaments he's not he's i would even go as far as to say that i am better than him and i am not good by any stretch mm. of the means um but just in general in positioning and in itc positions and overall skill level um but and that's just because of i feel like just because of that mindset that he's in and he, he might have yeah. gotten better this is this was a while ago um and i'm not specifically picking on him but that's the kind of mindset that that you can you have to avoid, right? Because that will it, that yeah. will stop you from that having good luck fundamentals. Well, and you'll you'll never you'll never see your flaws if you always blame everything on never. luck. Uh, and I think that these every time I see someone post to the internet about how their win record is thirty seven and zero, you know I never lose a game. I haven't lost a game since fifth edition. The only thing I thing I can think is you must be just about the worst player on the planet because good <laughs> players lose games constantly. Bad players think they've never lost anything. Man, I'm a really good player, right? Yeah, no, it's it's a it's a good inversion there. You can just tell people I'm like the best player on the planet. I lose, I lose all, all my games, games. constantly. It's so good. <laughs> all right, um, let, let's go ahead and talk about the next fundamental, John. Okay, I think once you get past luck, and once you get past all the factors there, another really big thing is knowledge. What do you know about the game? Because this is another big place where you can tell the difference between a really good player 
and a not very good player. Uh, good players, and this is something Jeff has said before, I think we've talked about on the show other times, good players learn everything they can about the game. When a new codex comes out, you need to read all the reviews. You need to be listening to the podcast, like maybe this podcast right here, where we sometimes talk about new codexes. Uh, you need to be borrowing that codex from your friends or buying it yourself. And that's not just for the codexes you want to play. That's for every codex. That's for every new release. That's for every new model. That's for every new army that starts getting hot on the tournament scene. You need to go out and figure out what it does and play a game against it and read the list discussion articles. That's all really big, not because you're going to need to you know, switch over to the flavor of the month, but because you need to know how to play against that army. And you need to know how to play against every army. That's why guys like Sean Naden come up with the crazy-ass lists that they do, because they are sitting down and analyzing every army that shows up in the meta and figuring out how to beat it and what its strengths and weaknesses are. Especially in 8th edition, you, you, you've got stratagems, relics. Yeah. Uh, it, it, codexes are more internally balanced now, so you've got different play styles coming out of codexes, especially with yeah. the chaos. You're, you're seeing multiple builds from almost every codex, mm -hmm. just rat different ways to run the army in many cases and you need to understand what those armies do or they will kick your teeth in you can't just sort of coast on your laurels and it's like oh i know what my army is so you know what is it you do you guys are all marines yeah that's fine whatever i know what marines are you probably don't go out there and read and read and read read the faqs read the discussions so you know what is not covered by the faqs because you see that online you, i'm sure you see it in the facebook groups and the forums and the blogs that you read about your army about all these weird little rules things that no one quite understands and there's not a lot of agreement over that's in every army that's in every single codex in the game and all those Different armies are all having their little discussions, and if you don't know what they're talking about, it's like, hey, you know, am I allowed to use this Eldar thing against this Alpha Legion thing? And if your only response to that is just sort of a blank stare, you're going to get caught with your pants down when you have to play that Eldar army. Yeah, and let me give you guys a little tip, something I do to learn armies, because I'm not, I'm not the most knowledgeable guy of other people's armies, um, but when I do know another faction that I don't primarily play, I know it really well. Um, and that's just by building a list for that faction. Um, so perfect. Building example. a list is really it tells Amazing. you so much you didn't realize about the army. Yeah, yeah. You, like I built a list um, with with uh, just Nurgle demons about mm -hmm. um, a year ago. Now this is in seventh edition, uh, and I didn't know anything about the faction itself, about chaos demons just in general. Um, but I had mm -hmm. to build a list for the stream on Frontline Gaming. So I, I spent like four hours looking through the codex and just freaking out. And then I finally, I was like, okay, Frankie, give me a list. And he's like, no, you got to build your own list. And I was like, okay, well, I guess I'll build a list. And when I built the list, I, I just saw these little tiny things that Nurgles could do. I still lost terribly, but <laughs> I, I learned what the faction did. And um, I've done the same thing with Blood Angels um, when the Blood Angels Codex came out, uh, Custodes, um, when the Custodes Codex came out. And I've just, I've tried to build a pure list. Don't, don't go soupy um, and, and crazy competitive. Just build a list. If you were, if you needed to win like a narrative game for your team, your quote unquote team, um, and you needed a good vanilla list that that needed to perform well, 
and win the the Battle of Xanor or whatever. Um, do that, and then mm-hmm. just keep that in mind. That, that's what that's kind of what my thought process was for for learning. Yeah, it's actions. It's a great technique for getting a feel how much things cost, what they can do, and all of that. Because when you're staring across the table from a list, it's a little hard to get a good feel for it. Mm-hmm. But when you're putting it together in your you know, copy of Battlescribe, Battlescribe is actually great for this because it lets you build armies of any faction. And it's mostly correct on points. <laughs> so it's good enough for what you're doing there. I wouldn't rely on it if you're going to a tournament. You know, Double-check your codex. But if you're just putting together a list for a thought experiment Battlescribe is great and just do that with with the codexes you don't know because there's a lot of stuff in there that you just may sort of be like huh i didn't realize that's how much those cost or that's only two points wow of course i take that uh there's a lot of little stuff like that that's going to jump at you when you build a list all right uh i think another thing that's kind of a, a corollary to this If you are a guy who's making it towards the top ranks and who knows a lot of things really well, you're going to end up correcting people on things. You know, it's like, hey, that's not what that rule does or, oh, you can't move there or whatever. Don't be that guy about it. Be a good guy because when you have to correct people like that, it doesn't feel great. No one likes getting their rules wrong and being corrected, but you can cushion that a lot if you're not being a jerk about it. And if you're also reminding them about their good stuff, like don't just be like, Oh, you're not allowed to move there. It's like, Hey, remember you got that six up feel no pain. And at a certain point you have to, you have to call a cutoff on that. Like you can't be like, Oh, and remember that you cast your psychic power on my guy, which denies me a movement phase, which means you win the game. You don't have to go that far. But if there's a mandatory rule that they just have that they're forgetting about, remind them, uh, because it's, it's all about like fairness at that point. You know, you want to, you want to play the game by the rules. That means the good and the bad. So, be willing to give people that that couple of inches that that little bit of like hey remember that thing that you you're supposed to do that's in your favor go ahead and do it uh because that will earn you a lot more leeway when you're like hey dude i'm sorry but your guy can't go there or actually that's not what your rule does uh because you're going to get into that situation and people are not going to be thrilled to discover that they can't do what they wanted to do and you can actually turn those situations into a positive learning experience for you. A uh, perfect example, I played a Necron player at a large tournament, and he was the first round of the day. Um, and I, I've talked about him on this podcast before, uh, but he was definitely l- less skilled than I was. Um, he's just, he had played mm-hmm. the army very often. Um, he didn't really know the missions. Um, he's kind of newer to 40k. Uh, so it was, it was, I knew immediately it was going to be a bloodbath. And he was also, he was running Necrons. And this was actually before I realized how bad Necrons were as a faction right now. Um, yeah. They really, they really just don't have the tools to succeed right now. But that's neither here nor there. Um, so I, I did this. I did exactly what you did, Sean. Um, <clears throat> I didn't rub it in his face. Uh, I kind of, I kind of did the things I knew I needed to do to win. And from there on, mm-hmm. I grabbed his index and I read the rules. I was reading the rules as he was working with the models, and I was reminding him of things like, oh, you know, your immortals can shoot this. It's actually like a 30-inch range gun or whatever, or just just things. Mm-hmm. I don't remember exactly specifics, but I do remember 
telling him that his Canoptic Spider could shoot, not Canoptic Spider, his Tomb Stalker, the centipede thing, oh, could yeah. shoot at scouts and then charge the, the assassin behind them um, instead yep. of shooting and charging the scouts, and that would get it on an objective. And that actually got him almost back into the game. So I was like, mm -hmm. but at the same time, I was glad he did it because he got to use his cool Forge World model that he painted really nicely. Um, yeah. But I learned a lot about the army specifically because it for me it became less a beating my opponent and more a how can i how can i get him to have fun and and beat me or try and beat me so it became more of a puzzle right like how do yeah. how does he do this just does he want to shoot this at that um etc cetera, etc cetera. so it was for me a really big learning experience um even though i only learned that that really necrons don't have very good options um but it was still learning yeah experience. but it's still like even in a game where you were just rolling that guy over, whether that's actually how the game turned out or not, you know, like you knew that you were going to win that game pretty much. You still learn something. And that's important because, you know, Necrons suck right now, but they're not going to suck forever. No. And knowing the details of that is is important. You know, learn everything you can, every kind you can. Uh Another thing I do a lot is, like, when I tell someone, it's like, hey, I don't think that's what your rule does, just say, like, I don't think that's what it is. Check your codex. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm wrong fairly often, but I'm not going to learn whether, you know, the, what the right rule is unless we look it up in the book because that's something a lot of people don't do. Just read your damn codexes. That is such a big part of it. Go go read the book and see what it actually says. <laughs> Up, there's stuff. There's stuff you can do other than read your codexes. Um, and it harkens back to listening to podcasts, specifically this one. Um, and that's the meta. Keeping up with the meta. That is a really big one. Good players, especially the players who are uh, trying to run sort of weird lists, who are trying to do something maybe a little unexpected to innovate that next new list. Or even just to have a list that is ready to deal with the meta, you're not going to do that unless you know what the meta is. So a little bit of a plug for chapter tactics here. I mean, we talk about what lists are winning all the time, and there are other sites that post this sort of information too. And if I can personally recommend Best Coast Pairings, not sponsored by them, I don't think. I'm not getting any. <laughs> we're not. We're not. We're, they sponsor us in spirit. Um, okay. Yeah, but Best Coast Pairings is a fantastic tool. I picked up a subscription to it not too long ago because I was just, you know, I want to be able to see what lists everyone is running because there are so many lists out there in 8th edition. And it's important to know who's running what where because the meta is not going to be the same everywhere. Your local meta may be very, very different from what they're playing a couple states away. And if you're driving over there for a tournament – you need to know that. So go out there and study what everyone's talking about, what lists are popular, because they, you know, there's always a hubbub about some new broken list or another. And you can kind of throw that part in the garbage. Don't worry about what people are saying about how, you know, new list X is unbeatable and needs to be nerfed by GW. That's just the day to day. But look at what that list is and who's playing it and what they're doing with it and what list it's beating and what list it's losing to. Yeah. And because that's, it's huge. Absolutely. No, go, yeah. Oh, and I'm looking at you listener. There are three things. Listeners make common mistakes. Listeners like you 
listener who thinks that they know the meta and just rolled their eyes and wants the segment to end. Because the meta isn't just, oh, Eldar and Chaos and Imperial Soup, etc., etc. There are assumptions that people make about the meta um, and common mistakes that I want to address right now. So number one, the top winning list isn't the meta. So just because no. Eldar <laughs> won the LVO and Chaos won the Berry Bash, that doesn't mean that it's only Eldar and Chaos. There are top fours and top eights, and those lists you need to worry about too. You need to worry about gatekeeper lists, which by definition never make the top tables, but you see them just as often as every other list, and you need to be able to beat them, right? There's yeah. also Space Marines. Space Marines are always the meta, so you always need to know what common Space Marine lists they are, because they are always going to be in the meta forever, no matter how bad they are. Space Marines are just yeah, that popular. Every, people love Space Marines. Yeah. yeah, to your to your point about, you know, don't look at the top list, look, look at the, the top X percent. It's not about what wins the tournament. No. It's about what placed well. And look at that top 16, because that's always what I do. I'll look over the top list. You know, it's the one that won, obviously. But what I really want to know is who made top eight, who made top 16? What did they win against and what did they lose against? The second mistake I see people um, make about learning the meta is uh, focusing on rare spark in the pan lists because they performed really well. Mm -hmm. um, perfect example, someone emailed me asking about Plague Burst Crawlers. He was super worried. He was like, man, how, I can't deal with Plague Burst Crawlers. Nothing in my faction, he plays Necrons, um, can kill them. <laughs> um, which, by the way, Necrons have answers to Plague Burst Crawlers. Um, they're not very good. Yeah. But they're not the worst counter to Necron players. But he was just he was really concerned. And I was like, listen, I'm, I'm going to be 100% real with you. Don and like two other people in the whole world run more than five Plague Burst Crawlers. And that's it. Yeah. And you're not going to run into them, in, in, especially where you are. He lives in the UK. It's like, oh, yeah. you live in the UK. You have to worry about Eldar and Chaos. Like, just, and Tyranids. Like, that, that's what you have to worry about right now. Um, and yeah. that's, that is more true for very extreme lists like that. You know, exactly. you see this nine Plague Burst Crawler list, and you're like, oh, that is some crazy shit. How do I deal with that? Now, chances are you don't face it, because who the hell owns nine Plague Burst Crawlers? Exactly. Those lists are almost, by definition, pretty rare. Yeah. And another another list, this actually popped up in 7th edition a lot, that a lot of people were really not worried about, but a lot of people kind of theorized that it was something they should worry about. And that was like 15 or 21 Iron Striders. Admic Iron oh, Striders, yeah. which no one ever ran, but consistently mm -hmm. in different competitive circles, people would say like, "Oh man, what about that list? Like, like that list will destroy me." I'm like, "No one, no one ran 21 Iron Striders, you, you know, no. or Dragoons, Sidonian Dragoons. That's what they are, um, you know, because in Seventh Edition, theoretically, if you were to build a 25 Sidonian Dragoon list, like you could do really, really well, just mathematically. No list could deal with it, but no one." owns that many Sidonian Dragoons, first of all. Um, and right. I'm sure someone is emailing you right now with a picture well, of their huge the, Admech army. Um, there's always one guy. Always. But, um, but he, you're not going to play him every game, um, and it, it's not something you have to worry about. So theoretical lists, things like, oh, well, I really lose to three Imperial Knights with one Gatling Cannon and, and Gauntlets. Like, yeah, mm -hmm. like, okay, you lose to this very specific list. Like, don't don't worry about it. Like, you're not going to run into it. And if you run into it, like, you know, oh, well, you also occasionally roll, like, 21s in a row. Like, that happens, too. 
Right. You know, that's just something you have to, a risk you have to deal with. But part of playing the meta is knowing when you can afford to take chances. Like, well, my matchup against Chaos Space Marines is kind of shitty, but my matchup against Eldar is great. And a good player is someone who can say, is that, you know, do I need to shore up my game against Chaos? Or am I fine with maybe just taking that loss if I get unlucky and run into that matchup? Yep. That's part of playing the meta. No list is perfect against everything. You have to balance where your strengths and weaknesses are. Okay, final thing, and then we'll do a quick recap. Final mistake people make about the meta misconceptions is that they know what the top Eldar list is. Like I, I, This happens mm. all the time specifically with Eldar. Ever since I've started going into competitive 40k... Um, they know what the top Death Star list is. They know what the other, when you ask them, they're like, "Oh, of course, the Eldar list has Dark Reapers. It has Wave Serpents. It has the Ivrain Inari, of course. Uh, it has this Guardians." And they name the standard, you know, things. And yes, you will see those lists. You will see those units, Shining Spears, Dark Reapers, etc. However, could you tell me the difference between Sean Naden's top eight Eldar list, Jeff Poole's top eight Eldar list, and Nick Nadavati's top eight Eldar list? Because they're all very, very different. Um, they they look similar, but they do not play the same. Not at all. And Jeff Pools is radically different from the the rest of the Eldar lists. But it's not really all. not the same list at all. Yeah, but and that that's the thing though is is it's a common misconception. Just people tend to lump a faction into specific a specific playstyle or for specific list. So if they see Eldar um in a top like a top player they see eldar under the faction name that they use to win they'll just assume oh it was the eldar list well it's actually not the case and that's actually something that it's not all it's not all your fault guys um if you if you do think that way um it's not your fault it's a product of the 40k community not being competitive enough yet um perfect example magic the gathering uh their lists they've got like like a bug rug rug aggro delver um, you know, blue-white miracles, blue-white control, you know, uh, drunk, junk, etc. So they've got all these really weird names, um, and a lot of the 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 um, what the names I listed, they all share colors, like bug mm -hmm. and rug, or specifically rug, uh, Delver, rug, Delver, and Tempo, Delver, Tempo. They're all red, blue, green decks, every single one of them, right? So if you were to see red, blue, green. Um, if that was all that it showed about the deck, you'd be like, oh, they just run a red-blue-green deck. But all of those decks are dramatically different. And same thing in 40k. So I, I always felt like we should move away from faction listing and, and Eldar, like name our lists. Like Nick Nanavati's list is Nanavati's list. Sean Naden's list is Naden's list. And there's like um, Flyerant spam, uh, Dark Reaper spam, which are different than Nanavati's list and Sean Naden's list. Right, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So there's, there's different list names. Uh, it's more talking about archetypes than factions, exactly. which I think is the important distinction. Yeah. An archetype is how the army functions. A faction is just whatever had the most points. Yeah, and and it, it's a hard mentality to get through, especially because the the lists that people come up with can sound really stupid. Um, mm -hmm. Especially if you look at things like the X-wing community. The X-wing community has uh, they just basically <laughs> the two or three pilots that are featured in a ship. You just combine them. So if you're, uh, you know, if you've got a Decimator and Kylo Ren, you're, you're um, Racklo, which is Rear Admiral Sharano and Kylo Ren, so you're Racklo. Or like Darth, you know, Darth Emperor with Vader and Upper Palpatine or whatever, right? Like there's you basically these weird combinations of lists 
names that don't make any sense. It sounds dumb and stupid, but it's all in the sake of, of communication and competition. Um, so that yeah. people know specifically what list it is instead of just the, oh, it's just the Imperial faction or the Rebel faction or whatever, right? So Right. And that's that's something but... not your fault, but remember the three mistakes that people make, com- three misconceptions about the meta that people commonly make are uh, faction, knowing specifically what lists uh, are assigned to a faction or assuming that. Uh, assuming that the top list is the meta, and mm-hmm. assuming that spark in the pan lists uh, or extreme lists are lists that you have to worry about in the meta. That's it. Yeah, those are all really good points. It's just those are the whole idea of oh, I know what everything is. You probably don't. There's a lot of information out there. Uh, and to that point, like find other good players to talk to or to listen to. You know. Obviously, I think Chapter Tactics is a good place to get a lot of information about things. But there are a lot of other places, too. Uh, There are Facebook groups. There are forums. There are blogs. Find places where there are good players and seek out what they have to say because they won't all agree with each other and you need to get all the information you can. Uh, And by the same token, and... I try not to come off as too negative, but don't listen to bad players. No, don't I tell know, them that. They're, they're going to turn the podcast off. No, 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 Pablo. <laughs> I, I, I'm. This is going to be breaking news to all of us, but you're not a bad player oh. because you understand how good you are. Oh, good point. People who can accurately assess their own skill level are not bad players. It is those players we talked about earlier who say, I have won 37 games in a row and never lost, or you just wouldn't have won if not for my bad dice. Those are the bad players. Mm-hmm. Or those people who are out there telling you Eldar are unbeatable, nothing can stop them right now, or Tyranids are unbeatable, or whatever army it is at the moment. Those are the people that you can't listen to. In fact, actively avoid them because even if you don't believe what they're saying, even if you say to yourself, I'm so smart, I know that Tyranids are beatable, I'm a good player. Hearing that mantra every single day, every time you check your Facebook feed, every time you go on Bell of Lost Souls, I'm sorry, Bell, I'm picking on you, but you're a bad sight. Um, hearing those the refrain from the bad players time after time after time, it gets into your perceptions and your subconscious and it changes the way you think, whether you believe it is or not. It's a really, it, it affects the way you perceive the game and you don't want that. You want to listen to good players. You want good information. So find the good sites Avoid the bad sites. It seems obvious, like you said at the beginning of the show, but how many of you leave a Facebook group because the players are in there are just a bunch of whiners? How many of you stop checking a section of one of your blog rolls because there's just no one is saying anything useful there? You, I mean, maybe you have friends there. Maybe you want to hang out with them. That's cool. But there's so many ways to talk to your friends. It's not that hard to get in contact with them. Don't listen to bad information. And good players usually want to talk about what they're doing because those good players also want to talk to other good players. So 
seek out those communities that can help you because that's where the really good players i mean it's it's been mentioned a couple of times i'm not sure many how many people picked up on the significance that like a big chunk of the top eight at lvo were people who were playing in the same community in the same meta and who were all friends with each other there's a reason for that those really good players were playing other really good players and communicating with them and that's how they got so good absolutely um and another another reason why those guys uh you know made the top 8 and why they're there um is consistency and persistence which is the next the next fundamentals that you guys need to learn um and persistent go ahead go ahead Sean well we've we've talked about a bunch of these things and they're all great you know if you mitigate your luck if you learn a lot about the game you can do well but if you don't stick with it, all of that is kind of for naught. You need to be willing to to knuckle down and do that extra work. We touched on that a little bit at the beginning. It takes a lot of work. You're going to have to spend a lot of time. I spend so many hours every week building lists and reading codexes and recording podcasts and talking with people online 20 minutes before we started recording here, I was talking with one of my other friends who plays very competitively with me about different tournament, about different lists for a tournament I'm going to be going to in a couple months. You've got to put that work in. And it's all about doing it consistently and not giving up. And you sometimes it won't work out. You'll lose. You'll do poorly at a tournament. You can't let that stop you because how many of the guys in the top eight there had never made the top eight before? Quite a few of them. How many of those guys have never won a tournament before? Probably more than a couple, but they keep coming back. They keep trying. They try new things, and eventually it pays off. So when you're when you're losing games – You've got to, after the game is over, stop and say, why did I lose that? You know, it sucked. Maybe my dice were a little bad. I don't care about that because I remember point number one in our whole little spiel here. But what went wrong? What bad choices did I make? Where did I fail? Because no one wants to admit it, but when you lose a game, it's probably because you made a mistake. Back in 6th edition, I played uh, Sean Naden with his uh, Lictorshame list at the LVO. And I had a real strong Eldar Tau list, but that's exactly who he came prepared to beat. And I played that game, and he kicked my teeth in pretty good. He didn't quite table me, but he basically tabled me. And after that game was over, I sat down and I looked at it. And I just looked and I was like, I made some real big mistakes in several very important places. And more than that, Sean just played better than me. He is a good guy and he will not give you an inch when you make mistakes. And recognizing that and looking at like, what did I do wrong? How can I avoid making that mistake in the future is critical. Because if you don't understand how you lost, you won't be able to win. And absolutely talk to your opponent after that game because your opponent knows what you did wrong. They're the ones who took advantage of it. So 
if you've got a little bit of time after the game, maybe you got tabled on turn three and you're an hour early, ask them, like, how did you do that? What did you do to me? Where did I screw up? Because if they're the better player, they'll be able to point that out. They know what you did, and they'll be able to show that to you. And maybe next time you won't do that. Yeah, and do this persistently every single Constantly. game. Constantly, No, no yes. matter the opponent. If they're worse than you, then then they can tell you the things that they think that you should have done better, and then do the opposite. Um, and obviously, sure. if they're a better player than you, obviously you, you want to listen to them. But the, the point is, is that just having that conversation that Sean talked about after every game, narrative game, kill team game, 2,000 point game, APOC game, it doesn't really matter. Um, <clears throat> obviously, you don't want to spend as much time talking about an APOC game versus like well, the, yeah. the 2,000 point competitive top four game. But uh, it's always good to just look back on it and 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 analyze your decisions, um, which, is, yeah. which is really what you're doing. Every single game is a learning experience. And you will not learn if you don't get those games in. You need to practice against good players. You need to practice against bad players if that's all you've got. Play games every single week. If you're not getting a game in every week, you're not going to win GTs. The players who do that, who get those, you know, one game, two games, three games sometimes in in a week are the players who are becoming good because everyone makes those mistakes, everyone screws up, everyone does things wrong, but the good players learn from that in practice games before they go to a tournament so that when they go to a tournament, they know what they did wrong in that practice game and they're able to do better. Uh, you know, if you've never played orcs before, you may not understand how fast they are or what tricks they have. Practice against orcs. Practice against Necrons. Practice against Tyranids, Eldar, Chaos, Imperium. You need to get in those games against all those armies wherever you can because practice is what makes good players. Yeah. That's – if there's only one thing you take away from this whole little segment, practice more. That's it. We're done. Oh, I wish. (laughs) Well, I mean, really, that's what it all comes down to. All these other points just relate back to practicing because you you won't know until you have that game under your belts. Yes. And sometimes, you know, your games don't go the way you want them. You'll have a practice game that goes really badly. You should be able to learn a lot from that. I honestly learn a lot more from my losses than from my wins because a win can only teach you so much. But a loss, you can really look back at that and say, where did it go wrong? But in a tournament, or in really you should be doing this outside of tournaments, but it's most important at tournaments, just because you're doing badly doesn't mean you should give up. I've seen the most bizarre nonsense happen in games. I've lost a game to opponent who had a single model on the board. Hmm. Why? Because he controlled the relic at the end of that game, and I did not. I had so many guns pointed at as one shitty little drop pod with one HP, but he had a drop pod with one HP on the relic, and I didn't. And you need to be ready for that. This is another thing that good players do, is they don't give up. Um, great example, LVO top eight, Tony versus Alex. 
Alex makes his huge blunder that has been talked to death by everyone, puts that assassin down. Tony denies him the movement phase. I'm not going to argue whether rightfully or not. Again, the subject has been beaten to death. Alex's first instinct there is just, well, the game's yours. You know, I lost a movement phase. I'm an all-close combat army or a shooting army. I gave up a whole turn. I just lose. And then you see it, the light come on in his head just a moment later. You know, I can't let it end here. I don't think I'm going to win, but maybe Tony just whiffs all his shot next turn and I roll super hot on saves and I take the game anyways. You've got to always be looking for the victory even when you're losing. What can I do to turn this game around and win? Because if you're in a losing mindset, if you're thinking, I'm going to lose this, there's nothing I can do, there's so many guns, I'm so far away, it's just not going to work, you will lose. But if you're in that winning mindset of, okay, if I move this here, it takes it out of his line of sight, and in a couple turns, I'll be able to hold this objective later on in the game, and oh, if I kill one more unit this turn, then that'll give me the extra victory point, which maybe it matters, maybe it doesn't, but it puts me one up higher than I was before, or if I take out his guns here, he won't be able to shoot anything on this side of the field. You've got to be looking for what you can do to pull yourself back up when you're doing poorly. Because again, good players get bad dice, get bad decisions, they lose games, but they're always looking for that victory. Always. Even when the dice are shitty, even when they're feeling bad, you've got to you gotta be ready, just like Alex did, to step back and say, this is awful, this sucks, I'm probably going to lose this game, but I'm still going to fight tooth and nail to win it. And uh, just to take this even further, because I think this is a really good topic, um, and it really analyzes how well persistence can help you win a game. Um, there's there's two ways to battle plan or to kind of go about your game and your strategy. Uh, one is macro, which is uh, your overall arching strategy. This covers deployment, uh, your army list, and generally what your you know the what side of the board you're going to take, et cetera, et cetera. But we're going to yeah, focus the big on plan. yeah the big plan. We're going to focus on the other side, micro, um, which is basically looking at little tiny specific parts of the game. Um, in this case, <clears throat> it's winning the game and it's getting points. So you want to be persistently getting points. If you're losing, uh, and, and I, I actually fall fall into this trap all the time when I'm winning big. Uh, I I tend to let off the gas a little bit and I tend to not be persistent and consistent and scoring my points when I'm winning. And this is actually bigger in ITC Champions missions than other missions, um, because ITC Champions missions, you're scoring points every game, or every turn, sorry. Yeah. So, so you're you're keeping that running tally. Um, but it, the, the way you can really do this and be persistent about it um, from a micro level is every turn, score three points, or shoot for a point number that you want to shoot for. Don't try to mm -hmm. overextend. Don't try to deny your opponent points. Uh, don't try to do too much because a you need that game to go to turn six. So if you're already losing, you're losing turn one and turn two. Turn ones and turn two and turn three, they're not your turns. You're not going to win. You're going to win in turn six if you're losing. Yeah. Like the, every time. So you need to get to turn six. So you need to play a little quicker. You need to become more efficient. Uh, but you also need to persistently get points, um, even if that means you don't get to do the cool things your army likes to do. Um, if Calgar, if you really want Calgar to run over there and punch a swarm lord in the face. You know, on turn three, 
like sorry like that's not that's not going to happen if you want to be persistent here he's going to have to drop into the backfield and score that objective that your poor scouts died trying to score and he's going to have to sit there and it, he's going to twiddle his thumbs and it's going to suck but you're shooting for points not board position not cool factor not denying your opponent points or killing your opponent's units you're, you're shooting just for points and that's it be persistent and uh, Reese, actually, I, I, I don't want to give Reese too much credit uh, because he is Reese, but he is, does a really <laughs> good job of persistently and consistently getting points throughout an entire game. And he does this through a multiple different ways. There's the Reese coaster, um, which is if you haven't watched the Frontline Gaming streams, a little oh, bit of yeah. inside joke, but he, he kind of, he wears you down. He'll, he'll complain um, and, and kind of hype up your army like, oh, your list is is broken. Like my list sucks. Like I don't know why we're even playing this game. I'm gonna lose, and then something good will happen, and then he'll start like, oh, like that's really cool, and then you know you'll do something good, and he'll be like, oh, it sucks. But then at the end he wins by like one point, or, or it's super close. Um, and it's actually something I saw him doing against Frankie in a practice game they were playing. That uh, Reese w- was was just complaining about Frankie's plague plague demon or Nurgle demon li- list. In eighth edition, this is a, a couple weeks ago. Just non-stop. I remember that that battle rep. Yeah, yeah. non-stop. It was so bad, and I told Frankie like, "Don't let him Reese coast for you." And Frankie's like, <laughs> "I know, I know." And Reese Reese told me he's like, "Pablo, I'm like 17 points down. Like, how am I gonna win?" And I'm like, "Reese, I know you. <laughs> you you're this is gonna be close." Turns out Reese like failed a, a charge or did something silly and lost by like a point. And if he had if he had yeah, done something else, he would have was... won. It was super close, yeah. and it, it didn't look like it was going to be. And you're, you're, you mentioned, you know, I do this a lot when I'm winning. I think that's a really good point. Don't just, just be persistent when you're losing. You need to be persistent when you're winning. Yeah. Get all those points. Because, you know, some of these tournaments, they're not going to have a perfect victory. There's 30 players there and only four rounds. You need to max your score out. And sometimes it's not glorious. Sometimes it's Calgar sitting on an objective in the backfield, but you're not looking for glory. You're looking for the win. Yeah, you're persistently. You need to be persistently scoring points. Um, and Reese does it better than anyone I know. So, yeah. Uh, the last thing I kind of want to talk on here, and this is kind of bleeding into our next topic a little bit, but there's. If you're going to a lot of tournaments, there's basically going to be two kinds of tournaments you're seeing a lot of. The RTTs, the the rogue trader tournaments, to use the the old terminology, are the, the little one days, three rounds. It's probably like 10 to 20 people. It's no big deal. If you're going to these tournaments, this is where you're doing a lot of your learning at. This is where you're trying out your wacky new list ideas. This is where you're you're testing out like, hey, it's 8th edition. Are Shining Spears good now? Well, it turns out they are, but you're not going to know that until you try them. So if you're if you're running around to tournaments, all these little one days, these are all your practice events. Maybe you win them, maybe you don't. What you're really looking for out of these is getting in good learning. Games against armies you've never faced before. Playing with armies that you've never run before. Uh, this is where you've gotta you've got to learn as much as you can about the game. But when you go to a GT, the Grand Tournaments, one of these two-day, five-round, six-round events, you got to be bringing your A game. You need to already know all this stuff. You have got to you. If your list was not hammered down weeks in advance, you are probably doing something wrong because by the time you go to this event, 
you should have a lot of practice in with whatever list it is you're bringing and and maybe you tweak a psychic power on an HQ or drop an upgrade here or there but if you're revamping 200 or 300 or 500 points to your list the night before the tournaments you're probably not going to do well uh this is something Jeff has talked about before and I am very much behind him on it GTs are where you bring your tried and tested RTTs are where you do the trying and testing. Yeah. Um, and to kind of follow in, like, army lists. I mean, every, army lists are, like, the thing we talk about the most. We talk about what army won this or what army won that or or whatever. But they're one of the things that I think a lot of people approach from the wrong angle. Uh, and part of that is everyone is always looking for the the best lists. And that's kind of a misnomer because there is no one best lists. There's going to be a lot of different lists that are all varying strengths about against many different lists. And you're going to have to test them out and figure out what works for you. But you can't just settle on one list because every tournament you go to is going to have a different meta. It's going to have different missions in a lot of cases. I mean, the ITC has standardized some of that, but still there are a lot of tournaments out there who run a little bit different missions. You know, oh, hey, we don't use Mission 4 because we don't like it, or, well, we re- we added night fighting to this one because we think it balances things out. you got to know what's going on there, and you've got to have your list be ready for that. You can't You can't just sit on one list because... None of those guys who make top eight at LVO, none of the guys who win the GTs, they're not just sitting on one list and running it again and again and again. Uh, Val, our, one of our other co-hosts here, like every time he comes to a new episode, he, he talks about one of his orc lists a little bit. And it's a bit different than it was last time because he's always trying to adapt and improve that list because the meta has changed and his view on the game has changed. He's trying to get better. He looks back on his old lists and he says, oh, what was I thinking there? And that's just part of the process. You you, you discard ideas because they're not good enough. And you've got to be willing to do that. You know, I said you take your, your RTTs or where you test everything out. Take all those weird little units in your codex and try them out and see what they do. And how does this work out? And what's it do? Try everything you can because there are so many ways to build a list. Like you see all these Eldar lists these days that are just craft worlds in Yanari. What about Harlequins? What about Dark Eldar? You know, Dark Eldar are getting a codex here real soon. That might completely change what it is that Eldar want to be doing because maybe there's some really, really good stuff in those books. And big secret here, I've heard some stuff from a few people that I know that yeah, I think there is some really, really good stuff in that Dark Eldar Codex, so be on the lookouts. Um, but always be trying new things, because the thing that you were doing last week, last month, everyone already knows how that works. And it's it's that new thing, that new combination, that new trick that is really going to catch everyone off guard. Uh, when we saw LVO, everyone's like, oh, yeah, Eldar. Everyone knows Eldar are powerful. Those top eight LV- Eldar lists, the, the three different versions that we saw, were not what most people were running for Eldar. Most people were like, oh, yeah, Reaper spam. Those armies had like three, maybe four units of Dark Reapers in them in most cases. It's not really spam. 
spam, like they were running a lot more of most other things than they were of Dark Reapers. Dark Reapers were just one of the components, and that's because they were willing to try out different units and different combinations and see what they did. And by the same token, if something doesn't work, it should go in the trash bin right away. Like, I get it. You you absolutely love your warp spiders. They were so cool back in 7th edition. They were the bee's knees. I had six units of them myself. They're not good anymore. Don't run them. And if things aren't good, you have to be willing to throw them away. Because not everything is going to work out the way you want it to. And if you are shooting for that, those top spots, those, the best army in the game to bring that super powerful list that does everything and has a bag of chips, you have to be willing to throw away the parts of it that don't work. I, I ran the Eldar Flyers for a while in my army. They just weren't doing what I needed them to. And so I said, sorry guys, you know, I painted up this, these beautiful hemlocks. Don't use them anymore. They're just sitting on my shelf these days because they weren't good enough. 200 points is a lot, and you can get a lot for 200. And I just decided that, you know, these guys are not bringing what I need to the table. Because some units have what you need and some don't, and you need to find that out. Um, And – oh, go ahead. If I can actually add another one to this before we get to the last point – with with good army list fundamentals um also means that you are willing to share your list online constantly and this kind of goes yeah. into uh persistence uh and knowledge you know knowledge looking for good players and persistence always writing lists and always improving and changing your list but sharing your army list i think is also good army list fundamentals um because Absolutely. it keeps your army list in your head and you you're constantly thinking about it like when i play an army and a list like i really want to do well at a tournament i consistently think about that list while i'm working while i'm driving while i'm talking mm-hmm. to my wife when she when she's talking about planning and, and decorating <laughs> or, or whatever i i don't worry that. we won't tell her that <laughs> she doesn't listen to my podcast <laughs> we're good okay good <clears throat> i but i think about that that list that specific thing i, I you know i play games in my head past games in my mind, um, but it's always focused about that list and what I want that list to do. Uh, and I feel like yeah. that's also really good list fundamentals is you you need to know your list so well that you can recite it from memory at any point in time so you can think about it when you're playing through games in your head. And, yeah, and if, you, if you can't recite your list from memory unit by unit, you probably don't know that list well enough. Yep. Uh, and as you sort of your to your, your first little part of that, Talk about your list with other players. Get other sets of eyes. Like I said, 15 minutes before this podcast started, I was talking about another player with lists. And I know, actually, it was Shaylin, who I know you talk about with lists all the time, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, she's one of the top GK players in the world. Pablo has been running strike squads and talking about her, like, how do you run your strike squads? What units do you bring in? When do you drop them? What do you do with them? Talk to other people, get those other sets of eyes on your lists, because their ideas are going to be different from your ideas. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, and to our, our final point in the army list, and something we talked on earlier in the, the luck section, redundancy, 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 redundancy. You can't just have one of something and call it a day. 
it's there's a saying amongst uh, some of the IG players that I've talked to that I think really they're just the only ones who get it and everyone else should be saying this as well. You bring three of anything you want because one of them will miss, one of them will be dead, and the third one gets the job done. And that's how you have to think about your list. It's like, it's fine, I brought a unit howling band, they'll charge that thing that gets into my lines and take care of it. Now, what if your opponent shoots those banshees? Suddenly they don't have it. Or what if what if you fail to charge? There's so many things that can go wrong in a game. Or what if your opponent charges two different units? What are you going to do then? There's, there's so many ways you need to be ready to deal with problems that one of something is the same as zero of something. You need to have two or three or more. You know... I'm building an Eldar list. Yeah, I take my three units of Dark Reapers. But then I look at, where else can I get some heavy firepower? Do I bring some Wraith Guard? Do I bring some Fire Dragons? Do I bring some of those Flyers that I was kind of biting on earlier? Do I bring Support Weapons, Wraith Lords? What are my other options? You need ways to deal with different problems, and you need multiple ways to deal with every problem. Yeah. And that, that's a real list fundamental, especially in 8th edition. Um, yes. I'd, I'd even call it a rule of three of sorts, and that taking three of things in eighth edition just not only does it make sense from a list building perspective, um, because you know you've got requirements, you need three heavy supports, you need three troop choices, or three mm -hmm. HQs for the Supreme Command Detachment. So it already kind of helps you along there. Uh, but running GW kind of nudges you that yeah, way, anyways. Yeah. So, yeah. so it's already organic when you're list building. Um, but running three of things is always always important and uh <clears throat> i actually i learned this using my cyclops demolition vehicles uh, oh when yeah I, when i went in september when i went on my huge tournament spree I played like like over 40 tournament games in september alone um but mm -hmm. it, w with my cyclops is for those of you who don't know they're little vehicles uh they blow up and when they blow up they die they're gone so you have to be really efficient with them you can't just throw them away um because you want the, I wanted them to do so much for my army. They were basically, I built my list around them. But I, I started with two originally, didn't work. I tried one, one didn't work, and I, I found that the sweet spot was three. Because four, four was too many, it was starting to take up too many heavy support slots. Um, mm -hmm. And three, I followed this exact mantra. And it's funny that they're guard vehicles too, um, because one Cyclops yeah. would always drop down and my opponent would focus it. Like, ah, it's going to shoot 2d6 last cannon shots at me, I have to kill it. But then he finds out how tough it is, because they're tough yep. little things. So the second one will blow up where I want it to, but their blow-up is so random that the second one would always yeah, you, die, mess up every you time. You roll that four on the 2d6 and fail right. to wound and, with two exactly. of them or whatever. Something like something bad. And so it was always the third one that cleaned up and did everything I needed it to do. Um, always. Yeah. And when I was running two, I, was, I, just, I ne they never, never got anything out of them. Um, and then when I ran five, um, which is the most I've ever run... I just had Cyclopses lying around doing nothing. Was... Right, you ran out of targets. Right, right. Yeah, it's it's all about getting that good balance of 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 things that can fill different roles. Yeah. And in your list, three was the perfect number. Three isn't always the perfect number. No. We'll sort of caveat that, but there is going to be some correct number and you need to find what that is. And it's not going to be one in most cases. Yeah. Very rarely do I include solos of units in lists. I do it occasionally, but not very often because yeah. you need backups. Yeah, it has to be really good. Like, and not a unique character. Like obviously you want one Celestine or one. Sure. Gentleman, but 
Um, and even, you know, most HQs, a lot of times you're not taking duplicates of right. them. Um, uh, but I've got, other units. I've got a, the Thunder, Space Marine Thunderfire Cannon is a perfect example of a unit you should yep. only take one of. Uh, the Thunderfire one is Cannon, the perfect one. Yeah, it, it's, it's expensive. It's 121 points, so it's not... Not something you want to run three of, because um, that's a big chunk of your of your army. Um, but running one, it hits the entire table, so it's always going to do the thing that you want it to do, and that's have the move, advance, and charge rolls with the stratagem, the tremor shell stratagem of a unit. And that's it. That's yeah. all my Thunderfire Cannon does. Um, people look at my Thunderfire Cannon, and they're like, oh, does that kill scouts? I'm like, no, it just <laughs> halves the movement of things, and that's... I'm spending you never shoot it at scouts, exactly. yeah. I'm spending 121 points for something that will maybe kill a Dark Reaper, uh, sit on an objective and be relatively tough to kill, um, and give me a character, an extra character if the Thunderfire Cannon dies. Um, but mm -hmm. it consistently use, turns my command points into things that I can annoy my opponent with um, and throw off, throw their game off. And that's that's always what it will do, and I don't need any more than that. just need one Thunderfire Cannon, but... And and that actually dovetails nicely into our final big bullet point here, which is the mission. Because people look at that Thunderfire Cannon, they're like, oh, it doesn't kill anything, it's so bad. And I know one particular commenter who will certainly give us a lecture about this. Uh, but you know what? Killing things kind of doesn't win you games. Like, you get points for it in our ITC Champions missions, but you're getting a lot of points off other things, and the mission is what wins you the game, not just killing enemy models. So that having the movement speed on a unit with that Thunderfire Cannon, that's really, really strong because it keeps people off objectives. It keeps people from getting where they need to be. And that's winning you the game right there, even if you don't kill any models at all. The mission is what you have to be focused on all the time. How am I going to score points? How am I going to deny my opponent's points? Because if you're scoring more than your opponents, you're going to win. It seems like the most obvious, stupid thing in the world to say, but how many times during a game have you, like, wiped out 90% of your opponent's army, and you look at it at the end of the game, and they're three points ahead of you, and you lose? That's happened to all of us, and... It happens because you get too focused on killing those enemy models and not focused on scoring points. Like you said, Reese is really good at staying laser-focused on that mission. Yeah. And that's his big strength. Like, his lists often are not that good. <laughs> Some of his play skills might be a little middling. Uh, I'm not being particularly charitable to him here, but I'm assuming he doesn't listen to the podcast either. I just assume that, you know, it's it, it, this will remain a secret forever. But, you know, the truth is, Reese is really good at playing the mission, and that's why he wins games, is because at the end of the day, it's how many points you got, not what you killed. Yeah. And, and if you guys want a visual representation of this, um, or if you just want to see this in action... Um, and learn more because this this truthfully this topic could probably take up an entire episode by itself oh. absolutely um but watch the best eldar players uh because i've been to a lot of tournaments i've seen a lot of tournament games um and the the players that do this the best uh, are like pj pants when he's running eldar uh, nick Natavati, brad mm -hmm. chester uh, um sean naden does this extremely well uh the and the, all the running eldar. yeah 
Yeah, only when they're winning LR is I, I've I've long learned that when I'm watching those players play, I can't look at the game and figure out who's winning mm-hmm. just by looking at the game state. Um, because they'll, oftentimes they'll have no models on the board anywhere, seemingly. Um, but when I ask their opponent how they're doing, their opponent's like, oh, dude, he's crushing me. He's winning like 30 to 5, right? Yeah. Um, and, and you can't tell at all. And it, it looks like if you were to look at it, snapshot, no score sheets, it would look like every time, like Sean Naden, Brad Chester, Nanavati, they're getting their ass handed to them because their models are all gone, um, which is it's not true at all. Um, th- those guys are no, phenomenal at, at closing you... out games. You've got to be willing to sacrifice models to gain points and know when that sacrifice is worthwhile. Because I've seen players like throw like a 20 man unit of berserkers onto an objective. I'm like, that, that they're not charging me? No, I got to score this objective. All right. Well, it, it, I guess it means you get a point this turn, but it probably wasn't worth it. But on the other hand, sometimes it is worth it. If that one point is what wins you the game, then you need to go for it. But that's a big part of being a good player is know know how the mission works and when you can afford to let. Sorry about that, guys. We had a quick cutout. Uh, apparently, Reese does listen to this podcast when we're live recording it, and he turned off the internet um, using his magical powers. He called GW up. GW shot, fired a, a cease and desist missile at my house. Um, because we were talking about Dark Eldar earlier. Sean, that's your fault. And... Yeah, I'm sorry, dude. <laughs> I just I thought that it would be okay because they're the sneaky, cheaty ones, and I figured it would be okay to be a little sneaky and cheaty in discussing them, but apparently GW has this whole like non-disclosure agreements yeah. and legal laws and all that kind of nonsense, so we took a direct hit. Sorry, guys. So we're okay. We're back. Uh, Sean was talking about missions and how they are how they are created and how that affects how people play them yeah you you gotta know what the mission is because a lot of these a lot of tournaments run these itc championship missions but not all of them some of them use the older itc missions some of them use book missions some of them use custom missions some of them use the nova missions or something else so when you're building your list, don't just build a list for in general. Build a list for the missions you're going to be playing and the meta you're going to be playing at. Because if you don't understand how those missions work, if you haven't practiced them, remember that little point about practicing and practicing and practicing? Yeah, that's still really important for missions too, uh, not just armies. If you don't know how those missions work, you won't understand how to win them. Uh, you know, you see these Eldar lists and it's just like, oh, they have so much firepower. Well, it's not just that. They also, like, those Eldar armies don't give up any ITC championships points on the secondaries. They don't have any 10-wound models. They don't have any 10-man squads. They don't have that many HQs. They're really hard to claim points off of. And that's why, that's a big part of the reason why they win. Um, you know, when Pablo talks about like they've got no models left on the board and they're winning 30 to 5, that's because they've got all their secondary points and the opponent hasn't gotten any. And the same thing can happen in other formats. It's not just that the ITC Championship missions are broken for Eldar. Uh, uh, every format has armies that do good and do bad. And you need to understand what those are. And you need to be ready to prepare your army for dealing with those missions. So to recap, players with good fundamentals know when luck, uh, know when to focus on on luck and use it to their advantage. 
uh, players with good fundamentals have a great knowledge about the game and they know where to find those resources to learn the knowledge, uh, they are persistent and consistent in their games and in their practices. They have an army list and they understand the fundamentals of making a good army list and using it and knowing what an army list can and can't do for you. And finally, players with good fundamentals know their missions and know how to win the missions and the scenarios that they're put in. Uh, so that's pretty much it. Now, if you found this this podcast uh, helpful for you in any way, I do highly re- recommend going back into the podcast or just writing those five fundamentals down and really, you know, looking at yourself and figuring out, you know, internally what what you can do to make yourself a better player. Uh, for me, exa- for example, I, I have a really hard time with being persistent and consistent. Uh, I don't practice as often as I should, and I really don't do a good job of persistently scoring points in missions. I know how to do it. I know missions generally really well. I do, I do practice the missions, but when we get into game and crunch time, I tend to focus on other things, um, which brings me to my second thing that I'm not really good at, and that's army list building uh, and not being willing to discard anything. Uh, I felt like I probably could have done even better in that September month stretch if I had just cut the whirlwinds out of my list, right? It just just those whirlwinds, you know, they took up a big point of my army, should have ran more Grey Knights or something else, but I didn't, um, and I felt like that really cost me because they underperformed, and I had... Uh, you know, several tournaments to take them out, and I never did because I, I wanted to make whirlwinds back. I wanted to make whirlwinds the new hotness, baby, because I wanted to be the whirlwind guy. That's the same thing with the Cyclops vehicles. <laughs> so I, I, in general, in my competitive career, I do have a problem, and I do have a tendency to not willing, not be willing to discard things when I'm building my lists. Um, so that's something I definitely have to work on. Uh, and then obviously everything else, I, I do have to just, in general, just be a little bit more consistent, be just a little bit more knowledgeable. Um, I think I'm pretty good on luck. I think I have a, a general understanding of that. Um, <clears throat> but it's really just knowledge is always something we're building. Um, that's always something everyone is improving on. Uh, and then persistence and consistency is, is the other one that, that good players and bad players really, um, it really sets them apart. Uh, so that, that's just it. So Yeah, I don't. I don't want people's takeaway from the to this, like, these are all binary elements. Either you've got it or you don't. These are all things that you build up over time and you get better at. Yes. Maybe when you first start out, you're not great at assessing the odds. Your, your luck skill is kind of bad, but you get better with it. You start to learn to cope with bad dice rolls or you learn to be more cavalier about, well, those whirlwinds just aren't doing it, so I guess they're out of the list. Everyone has things like that they struggle with. Everyone has strengths and weaknesses in their thing, and part of getting better is recognizing your strengths and understanding your weaknesses and coping with facts. Yeah, and and this these fundamentals, if you stick with it and, and you consciously decide to become a better player and try to climb the ladder, these fundamentals will become second nature to you. Um, like Sean yes. and I, I'm pretty sure Sean and I are very similar in the sense that uh, when a new codex comes out, we both take the time to read the codex and look at it. I know I do, um, and I know Sean does because yeah. he knows everything. So I know the he does. The very first thing I do is as soon as that codex is out, I am either borrowing a copy from someone who has it or buying my own copy right. because I need to know what's going on in that book. Right, and then uh, you know, I download missions for tournaments I go to. I don't just assume that they're running mm-hmm. ITC. 
you know, I will always download the missions, a complete mission pack copy, and just read through them. Uh, I, I'm, I either, you know, I, I'd say that I've got pretty good fundamentals uh, as a 40k player. I've got definitely better fundamentals than the average person, the average 40k player, which isn't saying much because the average 40k player is some dude who plays in his garage and occasionally paints his models. But right. But I, I would say that a lot of these things for me are becoming second nature because I, I, I choo I'm choosing to become a better tournament player. Um, so yeah. it will happen with you too. It'll happen with N all of these. None of these things are things you you start out doing innately. That's why we we keep emphasizing do this all the time, every time, until it becomes second nature. Absolutely. That's that's how you'll get to that point. And you will eventually if you keep at it. But you need to sort of learn it on the conscious level until it sort of drifts down into that unconscious level and you have internalized all of these things because great players have internalized all of these things. I wouldn't say that I've internalized all of these things. These are things I have to go back and remind myself of. But, you know, if we're being entirely honest, I bet Sean Naden and Nick Nadavani and everyone else have also. Like, everyone is always working to improve their game, even the very best players. Absolutely. So, don't feel like just because you don't do all of these things, you can never be great. We're telling you these things so that you can become a great player. Right on. All right, guys. Well, that's been the main topic. We're going to go ahead and jump into a commercial break, and then we'll go and go and do the interview with Skari from the Berry Bash. If you're curious to know how chess clocks work at a large tournament, you definitely want to listen to that. Also, if you're curious about what people are kind of trending towards, um, for the tournaments for the post-LVO meta. It's also a lot of good information there as well. So thanks very much for listening. Sean, thank you for coming on. It was great talking with you, Pablo. And we'll see you guys after the break. Are you looking to promote your event or 40K-related product to an audience of like-minded gamers? Try out a sponsorship with Chapter Tactics. For an average industry rate, you can have your tournament, convention, or unique product advertised here in this time slot. If you or someone you know is interested, please email me at frontlinegamingpdpab at gmail.com. Once again, that's frontlinegamingpeteypab at gmail.com. And thank you very much for your consideration. All right, guys. And we are back, and with me, I have Scarry from Scardcast over up in Canadia land. Canadia land, Pablo. Canadia land. That, that, I'll take it. <laughs> That's, uh, I, I think an American announcer for the Winter Olympics called it that at one point. I think. Canadian. Might have be a local guy. Local news That's reporter. A... I'll, I'll apologize for all Canadians. Speaking of which, uh, you're the first Canadian I've talked to since the U.S. women's hockey team beat you guys. Oh, my goodness. Not so, even having spoken to Val, have you? In, no, not yet. In your face, Canadian. Well, <laughs> I don't know what the uh, what happened to us Canadians when it came to the Olympic Games, like not really placing on any of the sports that we normally dominate at, which is hockey, curling, you know, things like that. But we did have a, we've had like a, we've had a record-breaking, um, we got a record number of 
of uh, medals, though. That's true. You guys, you guys are good. I think you guys got third place or second. Yeah. Um, Twenty medals or thirty medals or something like that. Yeah, I, I, but but anyways, all joking aside, let's talk about a different competition. Let's talk about forty k. Uh, this you guys are listening to this on in on the first Monday of March, and last week. On the weekend, the Berry Bash happened. Actually, the sixth annual Berry Bash. And you guys, if you attended the Berry Bash, I hope you had a great time. And if you did attend, hopefully you thanked this fine gentleman on the other side of the world talking to me, Mr. Scari, who helped create the Berry Bash and helped create the event. Uh, for those of you who don't know what the Berry Bash is, I'll let Scari explain it a little bit further. Take it away. Yeah, yeah, no problem at all. So, um, the Berry Bash is a an ITC ranked tournament. Uh, it's been running for six years now. And uh, it's run in Barrie, Ontario, Canada, which is about, you know, an hour north of Toronto. So any of you guys who want to come up next year, you're more than welcome to. It's very, very easy access to get to from, from even the airport and whatnot. If you want to fly out, that'd be cool. Um, and it started off as a small little RTT, you know, a couple of guys, just playing at the local friendly gaming store and and uh you know it's it's kind of morphed into a very community oriented tournament with help from people like Evan James who you know went has been down to the LVO a couple of times and uh the Canhammer guys and a lot of different local stores have really kind of jumped in to really help make the bash what it is uh places like Jackson Queen and a little place called Elmvale and Koros Games and Sir Games a lot, which was where we traditionally ran the bash. And this year it was the first year that we decided to um, essentially uh, bite the bullet and get a full-fledged um, location for the bash. So we we held it this year at the Tangle Creek Golf Club. It was a uh, a full you know, convention style event where we had the vendors and we had, um, uh, you know, catered food for all the, for all the, uh, all the players. And it was a licensed event so they could have a couple of drinks while they played. And, and, uh, all in all, it went from last year, we had, I believe, 46 players and we jumped up to 60 players, making it the first time that the bash has been a major, which I'm really, really excited about. And, uh, you know, it was very positive feedback and, and I'm very excited to essentially continue its growth and, and kind of see how, how big we can make it. Well, with, with now that you guys have, have picked a, an awesome venue, and by the way, I saw pictures from the very vast of the venue and it looks, it looks gorgeous. This, the, your venue, I think you did a really good job picking it. And well, that can't, I can't take any credit about that. That was Evan. Evan found, uh, you know, Evan and helped from like Tim, Tim Eagles, who's um, Deatless, who's been down to the LVO and the Bay Area Open a few times. You know, they really kind of pushed for, uh, you know, having the bash outside of like a small store and really kind of helping it grow wings by putting it in a few events. So they did, the, they found it, they did some research on the location and, you know, thank you for Tangle Creek. They gave us a really good deal on the whole and all in all, yeah, it's fantastic. It's great. The windows are big. It's lots of light. Like it was awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Evan and Tim. Uh, it's always it's always wonderful to see events grow 
from from you know small RTTs and stores to these big venues, these big uh, uh, lack for lack of a better word, these big scenes, these you know um, these big events. That's what they are. They're no longer tournaments. That's why I've I've moved away from calling tournaments tournaments and calling uh, bigger events like the Barry Bash like an event because that's what it is. It goes beyond just a simple tournament, a uh, few buddies all getting together, winning best general is the best, um, to vendors, multiple tournaments within this event, community, uh, people just showing up just to hang out and drink and party with their friends, you know, uh, to get away for the weekend. So there's there's so much good that can come from upgrading your tournament to an event. And yeah, I, that's, I do... that's, that's... Go ahead. No, no, that's fine. You were cutting out that for a second. So. Okay, I, I, I do, I do love talking about events. So if you, if you have an event and I haven't talked about you on Chapter Tactics, first off, I apologize. I, I think I do my best to try and cover all the big 40k events. Um, but if not, you know, reach out to me uh, via email, frontlinegamingpdpab at gmail dot com. Uh, I'd love to talk about your event a little bit, um, or just get to know, you know, what your event is and what it's about, and put it on my radar, um, because I think that's definitely the future of our hobby. And I think we are skyrocketing in a direction that I want us to go. And the only way that's possible is for more large events like the Berry Bash to continue. Uh, so, sorry, sorry, Sky, I just wanted to get on that little tangent there. Uh, let's talk about your 40k tournament at the Berry Bash. Yeah. So, you guys did things. You guys did things uh, a little, a little bit differently, um, in the sense that you guys put in chess clocks. In the final two rounds of your tournament, correct. Right. So, so this is actually something that that recent Frankie have talked about on signals from the front line, uh, and it is in the ITC beta rules now. So, how did there? Are a lot of people need to know. A lot of people want to know how did the test clock chess clocks go around working, and specifically, did you find them unwieldy? Statistically, did they make sense? Uh, monetarily, just just let us know about the chess clock experience. Okay, well, first and foremost, you know, I wanted to thank um, Black Knight Games, their store down in Hamilton, Ontario. They provided the tournament with um, a couple of chess clocks. Nice. So they provided us with four chess clocks, you know, nothing crazy. You know, they run a lot of War Machine events, so they have access to the chess clocks. But, you know, at, in terms of cost, to be honest, as a TO, you know, you should be prepared to have that as a cost, you know, if it's something that you want to run a big event as. Like, it's like, I was talking to Martin McNeil from All Games, and you know we were chatting about how you know if Everton were to go and play a, a game, a FIFA game at Manchester, you know you wouldn't have to t remind Everton to bring soccer balls. That makes sense. Yeah. Right, like part of it, you know why would you have to cover the cost? Well, because you want to run a professional ranked event. Um, you know, so in terms of that, it's, um, it, you know, it, it was really, I'm really had glad that they were able to help us out. We also had access to the tablets, you know, uh, which is like an app that, that does it for you. You can kind of tap it and it, and it switches the time back and forth. So there's lots of different options for a TO who wants to, you know, have access to, uh, this sort of, of tool, uh, late game. Now, <clears throat> Something that I did find from, from essentially trying it for the first time, uh, we did do rules where is, if a player ran out of time, then, you know, they're not allowed to do anything um, else for the game. So their, their opponent can essentially play out the entirety of the rest of the game, 
but their opponent doesn't have time to roll any dice at all or anything like that. So it kind of uh, uh, just disallows them from really kind of rolling any dice and moving anything and things like that. I mean, they can still score points at the end of their turns, but they essentially just it hamstrings them and makes it very important for you to use your time effectively. Now, the final, it was great. It was really, really good, um, you know, especially in the final round. Um, all we've heard over the last, you know, ever since the LVO has been a lot of um, commentary on the importance of managing time uh, and and how and how it, it's been such an issue at like high level events. So it was, you know, I don't mind pioneering ideas like this at at places like the Bash, where it might not be something that's you know, uh, really um, at the forefront at the moment. But, you know, some people are going to have to pioneer the idea at some point. And I don't mind jumping in and kind of testing it, testing the waters and seeing, you know, what the reaction is with the community. Yeah, and and uh, to rewind a little bit back here, uh, Black Knight Games, uh, Black Knight Games are the ones who sponsored the chess clocks, correct? Yeah. Uh, th- correct. That's, that's something that a lot of TOs are, are a little wary about, is spending that extra money for chess clocks. And uh, th- th- this is a perfect example of uh, Evan, Evan, and, and you reaching out to a sponsor and getting chess clocks from them. If you if you are an event and you have you you want to take your your tournament your event to the next level, that's th- this is kind of a perfect situation for you to take a hold of. You can get a sponsor like Black Knight Games, create like a swag bag, put some of their stuff in, really pimp them out, and uh, show how how awesome what they're you know how much good they're giving how much good they're bringing to your event and and how important of a sponsor they are in return they'll give you chess clocks or you know they'll give you something that you need to get chess clocks or to make your event better um so you know if you if you're creating a tournament if you're creating an event um it's very important to rely on sponsors because the sponsors are there to help you they're also there to help themselves too so there's a little bit of a mutual understanding and, and mutual trust when you're when you're making your event so it's yeah, always and- important yeah, and it doesn't just it doesn't only go to you know things like chess clocks. You know, at the bash, yeah. You know, um, only three of the tables were mine, and we set up thirty tables. Nice. So a lot of people brought their own tables and and helped out that as well. We had a a best table vote, so there was an incentive for players to bring their own table, and we had a vote for people who enjoyed their tables. So, you know, we had players bring one table or some bring three tables or some bring six tables. You know, like the guys from the Basement Collective, they, you know, help with not only the stream, but also, you know, uh, about five, five or six tables. And so did, uh, for example, Black Knight Games. So it's just been, you know, it was a full community event, you know, with everybody getting involved and, and bringing out the best to turn it into something really special. Nice. That, that's great. That, that's a good community activity as well. And I've never actually thought about the best table. I, I have seen events in the past where players brought their own tables, um, but you, you guys are the first ones I've heard that actually made a best table award for the tape for, for the people who brought the nicest terrain table for 40k yeah. tournament. And and that's that's kind of that's really innovative. I really like that. That was a fair idea from Evan. So thank you, Evan. That was awesome. Evan, you the man. All right. So. Yeah. Let's go back to these these results. So the chess clocks in general, yes, they helped. Yeah. Okay. 
chess clocks. And you guys didn't bring chess clocks for everyone. You just brought chess clocks for the top players or for everyone in round two? So there were two reasons I had the chess clocks. Uh, the first was um, to essentially be able to pinpoint uh, people during the event that had um, a track record at the event of, of having uh, you know spent too much time playing the game or, or where their games weren't finishing according to time constraints. Okay. And then essentially put a little bit of pressure on them uh, individually to finish their games. Um, to kind of, you know, uh, help their, their, like to, to just encourage them to, uh, to make sure that the, that the games were done in time. And the second, to really just test it because, you know, at the final, at the, at the, at the top, at the top tables of any event, you know, especially when stakes are so high, the last thing you want is for a game not to go to time. You know, and to and not to finish naturally, and to to finish, you know, three or four turns in when when it starts getting heated later in 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 the game. Okay. No, then that that's really where chess clocks are are really meant to be, um, in my opinion. I know everyone has different opinions on this, um, but in my opinion, I I feel like like chess clocks are important for those those high stakes, intense games where where players can sometimes forget about time because they're they're not worried necessarily about slow playing their opponent to a loss they're more worried about making mistakes um you know playing a complete game which can take up a lot of time um as opposed to players who are both you know oh and five maybe they got they got they got a couple drinks between them already they're having a blast um they might not their game might probably go to time but i don't see a chess clock in their game being particularly important um i see more it's more important that those guys both have a good time and enjoy themselves because that's that's what really what they're there for right um because you know they're both zero and five they're there to have a good time and they paid money just like the players at the top table um so i i think it, it's it's a good idea to be flexible with your chess clocks um which means you don't need a chess clock at every table which is, exactly. which is great and that was kind of like the idea you know most of the games did end up going to more of a natural conclusion anyway like there wasn't really uh, you know, any sort of slow play as far as, as we were concerned. Like there were no really, there weren't any complaints or anything like that that were vocalized to us. Okay. And, um, but you know, we found a lot of games would end. Yes, they would end quickly or there was the odd conceit here or there in game, but that was mostly because they just got absolutely slaughtered in the first two turns, you know? Yeah. All right. So let's talk about these results. In first place, we had uh, Josh Depp. And Josh Dead had a chaos list. Uh, I, I was counting up the points. It's it looks like it's a chaos a chaos death, death guard. guard death guard list chaos space marines. Um, it's a little soupy. It's got a chaos demons battalion detachment with a demon prince, the change caster, thirty pink horrors, and two units of nurglings. So a, a typical chaos build, and you have a caster, you have thirty pink horrors for a pink horror bomb, and then you have nurglings. And then a Death Guard Battalion with another Demon Prince of, of Nurgle this time, Typhus, two units of twenty or two units of nineteen Poxwalkers, five Plague Marines, and three Plague Burst Crawlers, uh, which is kind of the best the Death Guard have to offer, and in terms of a resilient a resilient HQ choice of the Demon Prince, Typhus, and Poxwalkers to make the Poxwalkers better, and then the Plague Burst Crawlers because Plague Burst Crawlers are really good, uh, and then he has another Chaos Demon Patrol with the Poxbringer. Um, to complete the Poxwalker cycle and more Nurglings. 
Uh, so it's it's a very it's a it's a very uh he calls it the death blossom list or the uh I guess the plague blossom list that evolved into the death blossom list. Um, it's a very very good list. Josh Death tends to bring these more cerebral lists that um aren't necessarily lethal on paper, um but they do a lot of work for him. So it's a, it's a really good list. If you're looking for a chaos list that isn't 30 blood letters and 30 cultists and um Magnus and Mortarian, kind of the more typical list that you see. Um, this is one you might want to look at, but very good list. Josh Death, congratulations! He got first, he got best overall, um, which which I I'm very happy for him. For it means that he not only performed well, but he also was a great sportsmanship, was a great sportsman, and also brought a nicely painted army. So Josh Death, way to represent the hobby. Second place, yeah. we had Dan Platt, uh, who brought Val Heffelfinger's Tyranids. Um, unfortunately, we couldn't bring on Val to talk to Skari as well. I know I know he really wanted to. Um I'm sure I'll, I'll we'll get to t- we'll get him to talk more on the podcast maybe in another episode. Uh but Dan Platt essentially brought Val's list because Val couldn't attend the Berry Bash and Dan Platt performed uh, as as expectedly extremely well. So Dan Platt brought uh, uh six hive tyrants. Just want to make sure I'm not missing any hive tyrants here. So he brought six hive tyrants. Uh, one of them was High Fleet Jormungandr, and then the other five were all High Fleet Leviathan. No, I'm sorry. Two were Cronus, three were High Fleet Leviathan, one was Jormungandr. Uh, all of them had two Devourers with Brain Leech Worms. Um, now, I, I don't, I'm not a big Tyranid player. Uh, Skari, is there? do you think there's a reason why he mixed Hive Fleets on the Hive Tyrants? Yeah, well, you need to have some Cronus in there for the anti-psychic uh, stratagem, uh-huh. which, you know, basically makes... A, a psycho within 24 inches uh, cost any... You can choose to... Just one command point, choose to make them cast a psychic power on a single dice. So it makes it... So basically you can essentially deny one power. Um, the the Jormungandr, I, I believe, is the extra save if they don't advance or charge, which then helps um, the, the Warlord stay alive. Mm-hmm. And then, you, is it Kraken or Leviathan? Leviathan? So Leviathan, I think, is um, on a six, they ignore damage results um, if you're within synapse creatures, which obviously the Hive Territs are synapse creatures. Um, right. So they're kind of like the feel no, like another level of feel no pain. Yeah, so they're just, they're very survivable. You know, Hive Tyrants are fantastic. They're definitely designed to, to you know, to, to, to munch up some Eldar, and they work quite... But I will say, at the Bash, in terms of like list breakdown, there was almost as many hive tyrants, flying hive tyrants, as there were players. <laughs> oh, that's a that's a lot. How many tyranny players were there at the Berry Bash? Well, I'd have to I'd have to like pull it up, but um, it was a it was a very high percentage. The the highest percentage was probably um any sort of chaos or demon. So there was a lot of chaos and demons. Mm-hmm. Out of chaos, most players were death guard, and um. And then out of demons, they were mostly Death Guard as well, with like Mortarion and Poxwalkers and Plague Plague Guard. I mean, uh, Plague Bearers. Yeah. Okay. So so uh, next, go ahead. The next highest was Tyranids, and any Space Marine was probably Blood Angels. There are a few Dark Angels in there. Very few actual Codex Space Marines, like Devon Swan was uh, Ultramarines, but that was the exception to the rule. Everybody was either Blood Angels, Tyranids. Death God or Demon. Yeah. Now let's let's talk about Devon Swan. Devon Swan, 
Uh, I, I normally, if you guys listen to my podcast, normally I like to focus on the people who went uh, undefeated, or if it's a six-round event, the people who went undefeated and people with one loss, uh, mostly because I don't have time to stay here all day, and because 11 players all went 4-1 at the Berry Bash, or better. Um, so we're not going to talk about all of them. However, I want to give a special note to Devin Swan, um, who got the most battle points at the event, so he did win the Best General Award. And also, he even though he got a 4-1 record, uh, he had 30, point, 30 more battle points than the second highest 4-1 player. So he basically yeah. had almost a full game's worth of points on Tory Pete, which means if, if... Oh, I'm sorry, on TJ Lanigan. Which means if TJ Lanigan had played a sixth round, he would have had to get more than 30 points just to pass Devin Swan in battle points. That's, that's already crazy, right? The Devin Swan's only loss came to a 22 to 17 decision round one against Dan Platt, um, the eventual second place winner. And Dan Platt's not exactly a, a slouch. He, he's um, arguably Canada's best 40k player. Um, I don't even think that's a very good, I don't even think that's a very, you know, decent argument um, if you're arguing against Dan Platt being the best 40k player in Canada. Um, he's definitely one of the best players in the world right now. So, Devin Swan losing by five points to Dan Platt. Want to give Devin Swan a shout out, even though his list is a, a little, uh, Dry. It's um three Fire Raptors, Gilliman, two Calexus Assassins, three Scouts, uh, and then a Librarian with a Jump Pack and a Primaris Lieutenant. So triple Fire Raptors and Gilliman, Yawn. Um, it's a very traditional Eighth Edition competitive list. However, it, it's still a list that you need to do well in and learn how to pilot. And all of his games um were very dominant wins, other than a Dan Platt loss. So congratulations to Devin Swan. You did really well. I'd say you represented Gilliman pretty well. Um, yeah, so that was uh, that. Yeah, that was definitely quite quite the uh, quite the you know the that matchup round one Devon versus Dan Platt was uh, ironically a um, but you couldn't actually make this stuff up. But that was the final game for the Barry Bash last year. That was your top table last year. Yes, that was the top table last year. It was Devon versus Dan Platt. And lo and behold, after pressing the Best Coast Pairings button and pairing the seed, like seeding all the tables on the first round, lo and behold, it's Dan Platt versus Devon Swan. So <laughs> it was, uh, that was definitely quite a, quite a great way to start the event, you know, kind of set the tone for everything. But uh, yeah, he, he was he was just just destroying everybody with that with that those uh, three fire raptors and Gulliman. Yeah, and and Dan Platt won that game last year too, right? He did. It was it it was very 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 close. It came down to I think a single screamer on an objective with uh, one wound oh, remaining. Oh no, Devin Swan, I'm calling you out, buddy. You need you need to get past the Dan Platt sized monkey on your back. To get it off of you, I, I'd like to know about their history. Actually, I think that'd be very funny to look into. Dan or Devin, yeah. if you're listening to this, what, what's your yes. overall record That's... against each other? Now, I did want to shout out uh, the 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 highest ranked uh, player in all of Canada last year was Jason Sparks. Okay, uh, was the best player in all of Canada, member of the ETC Canadian team. Okay. Oh, Dan Platt didn't really play too much, uh, uh, like 40k competitively last season, but I believe he'll be, he's back on the scene a lot heavier this, this season as we move into 2018. Yeah. But, um, but shout out to him because he definitely put in a lot of work and legroom, you know, 
placing well in a lot of big tournaments in order to, to get himself up there. So Jason Sparks, you're the man taking over Dan Platt. Uh, yeah, you know what? And I apologize for those for those Jason Sparks fans out there. Um, Dan Platt was so 2016, um, so <laughs> 7th edition ago. Uh, <laughs> um, but anyways, all joking aside, um, all congratulations to everyone who did really well. Um, I also heard through Scary that you guys also um, were very sportsmanlike uh, and very friendly. Uh, there was no there was no uh, issues, no incidents. So top players, very good job. Way to channel your inner Alex Fennel. And, that's right. Uh, that's it. So so we had a, a, a good diverse top four breakdown. We had two chaos players. T.J. Lanigan played chaos as well as Josh Death. Although they did have different chaos lists, they weren't carbon copies of each other. Um, which is something you see with the Chaos faction. You don't see the same lists over and over in the Chaos faction. Um, it's probably the most diverse top faction. Uh, and then Dan Platt with his Tyranids and Hive Tyrants, um, which are definitely making a comeback. Um, and then we had Devin Swan with his Triple Fire Raptors still coming in strong. Um, I, I want it's, it's really interesting because Triple Fire Raptors didn't do too well at the Las Vegas Open. You just had Trent Northington. Um, who who went five and one? But Trent Northington has been winning with Triple Fire Raptors and Gilliman since eighth edition began, and Trent's a phenomenal player. It's just that's his list. Um, so I would expect a guy like Trent Northington to go five and one at the LVO, um, with a list he's been playing for more than eight months. Right. So, uh, do you think maybe that people are moving away from Eldar, um, or that De- Devin Swan just just didn't run into the dreaded Dark Reaper spam list, or do you think people are um, moving away from Dark Reapers. It, it's it's kind of interesting. Um, I just want to get your take on it real quick, Scary, because you were actually there. Every almost every single Eldar player at the the bash was a was a um, had some form of of uh, except for one, I believe, had some form of Inari, you know, Cat Lady Reapers. Okay. okay so uh, but she, to uh, to a uh, few of the guys that didn't have any of that. <laughs> and they were just playing straight up craft world. Okay. Um, uh, but but no, Eldar is still very very predominant out there. And until you know we see some sort of change from you know the Inari side of things with uh, with uh, you know stratagems affecting them differently or whatnot, I think that we're going to still see them quite prevalently uh, on the team. Okay. And and uh, while while I have you here, um, what are your what are your kind of predictions for for the direction the meta is going to go when when Eldar inevitably get nerfed by by um, GW. Well, right now, you know, we have we have a, a string of three big books that are going to be coming out, and I think there's a lot of competitive players holding their breath. You know, if, if you if you're not a playtester and you don't really know what's coming on, you know, I know that a lot of the playtesters already have like some some information, but it's you know the, the the advent of Necrons, Tau, and and the it, ultimately the Drukhari, you know, might really shape uh, you know the 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 later part of 2018 quite quite heavily. So I feel like until then, like right now, waiting for the March FAQ, you know, nothing has really changed. Like Eldar is definitely king at the moment in terms of just like flexibility. You know, Death God is really strong uh, with. Uh, with it, all their or chaos in general is is really strong with how versatile they can be, mm-hmm. but um I I I honestly feel that things like Tau 
you know, coming coming into the into the competitive scene by storm could really throw a wrench into a lot of lists that we consider top notch at the moment. Yeah. And I think over time, you know, within the next six to nine weeks when all these new things get released and and really kinda showcase you know what what direction the game's gonna go. Yeah. And and uh and I'm glad you brought up Tau because um that that's a good point. Tau are traditionally uh you know, an army that, that can deal with things like a triple fire raptor list, right? Um, and the reason why I bring that up is uh, I was looking at Devin Swan's match records, and he played three Chaos players and two Tyranid players. Um, he obviously destroyed the three Chaos players and the one Tyranid player he beat, but and he, I, don't, I wouldn't say he destroyed the Tyranid player he beat. Um, he didn't max point him, but it, it, was, a, it was definitely a solid victory. Um, but, you know, if Devin dodged Eldar players, and I, I think... You know, I would be curious to see how well he would have done against Eldar players, uh, specifically Dark Reaper and Ari Eldar players, right? Because those Dark Reapers are, are supposed to counter Fire Raptors. They're supposed to be the gatekeeper to keeping Fire Raptors lists out of the top eight. And then as you see them get nerfed, um, will an army like Tau, you know, take the reins or will Fire Raptors become dominant? Because Fire Raptors do do really well in the Chaos matchup, right? If you can keep, if you can kill the, the, dark, the Demon Princes, you can axe them. Um, you, you, you know, there's very little chaos player can do to you, right? Um, I guess they could spam a ton of of cultists and pink horror shots at you. Um, they can't charge you with blood letters. Uh, and Gilliman does a pretty good job of of killing really nasty things that come in your way and muck you down. Um, and then you still have scouts to kind of prevent, you know, really nasty alpha strikes. So it, it's it's uh it's gonna be interesting to see how the meta shakes out. Um, so thanks for, thanks for your point on that. Yeah, 100%. All right. So <clears throat> um, that's pretty much it for the Barry Bash coverage. Scar, is there any last words you wanted to talk about the Barry Bash? Um, any other cool things or any final things you want us to add? Well, I'm really, really excited about next year. You know, I know the LVO has decided to move into February next year, which is when we traditionally run the Barry Bash. So I'm looking at, you know, making sure that we don't conflict with the largest tournament in existence and either do a primer for getting some last minute points to get yourself ready for the lvo or uh or again uh something shortly after in order for you to start your season with a major um it'll probably be at the same location uh so stay tuned to that and i just wanted to shout out last but not least martin mcneil from war games uk for coming down from england he's a channel sponsor and he came down just to play in the bash, had some fun with uh, his Nurgle demons, which is really, really hilarious to watch um, Nurgle demons go to town on stuff. <laughs> the Basement Collective guys for setting up the stream, which you can go, the games are recorded, so if you want to go take a look, go to the Basement Collective stream on Twitch. Right on. Okay, this is Scarry. Check him out. Scardcast. He's got tactics, battle reports painting tutorials follow him on instagram not instagram twitter although do you, you have an instagram right scary no yay, nay. i have uh yeah i've got instagram and i you know i also have a patreon page i am uh, which you are a patreon thank you <laughs> yeah i am we 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 talked a long time ago he told me he, he told me um i should be a patreon i said yep and then i signed up and uh, I I like it. I like the chat. I don't speak a lot in the chat. I don't I don't. Tr 
If you're a Patreon supporter of, of ScarCast, you know what I'm talking about. But if you're not, um, he has a chat specifically for his Patreon subscribers. And and it's it's fun. It's a cool little community. Everyone's got their own nicknames. Um, I don't tend to talk in Facebook chats a whole lot. Um, but whenever I do go in there, I usually I'll chime in there occasionally, say hi. It's, it's pretty fun. Everyone shows off their painted miniatures. Um, and it's a good little community. So yeah, it's really fun. And we do have a thing where last time we chatted, we get a thousand dollars. Then I will go to a GT dressed like a Harlequin. Remember? Yes. That was. Uh, I, uh, yes. Did that ever? Did that ever happen? It, it's it's getting there. We're about a third of the way there now. Okay. Once again, guys, Patreon. Sign on. I want to see Scarry in a Harlequin costume, um, particularly a female Harlequin costume, if we can manage it. Uh, though I will settle for any Harlequin costume. You guys get to pick. I don't think I would have a say. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so check out Scarry at Scarcast. It's really great. And then one final thing I want to talk about the Berry Bash before we close off this. Uh, the Berry Bash was the very first sponsor of Chapter Tactics, uh, officially the very first um, sponsor with a paid advertisement. Um, so I will always thank you, Scarry, and the guys at the Berry Bash for making that decision and for being a sponsor of Chapter Tactics. And if you would like to be a sponsor of Chapter Tactics, if you're a tournament organizer and you want to pimp out your event, or if you are a business owner and you have products related to 40K, check me out. Email me, frontlinegamingpdpab at gmail.com. I do have commercial spots, and if you'd like to be a sponsor, they are all yours. And that well, is it. Yep. Great. I really appreciated it. You know, really kind of put the name of the bash out there, and, and I'll definitely be doing it again next year. Right on. All right, guys. Thanks very much for listening. I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Have a good one. Ah, the Darkkin. <laughs>